Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 12th, 2012. Day two of the Code Orange Revival, otherwise known as the 12 Days of Heresy. On the first day of heresy, Stephen Furtick gave to me a sermon that was all about me. (laughs) I wish I was clever enough to write that. One of our listeners put that together. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of really crazy things being said about God, and it's taking place in prominent uh, churches, uh, flagship churches that are supposed to be uh, to represent the uh, the pinnacle, the apex of Christian churches, you know, the so-called megachurches. The problem is, is that many times in order to build a church or to grow a church to such a size, uh, pastors have to, well, cut corners, make compromises, alter the message a little bit, engage in some creative editing, you know. Update the message a little bit to be more relevant to where people are at right now. And that's what we're seeing happening at Stephen Furtick's Code Orange Revival. In fact, um, things are so bad, yet it was such a miserable, bad start uh, to the Code Orange Revival that uh, I've decided to dedicate the entire program today to this topic with one small caveat or or addendum at the end of it. I'll explain here in a second. Um, Now, some of you listening are going, wait a second, I I watched the Code Orange revival, or I was there. It was the most amazing thing ever. Oh, my goodness, thousands of people made decisions to follow Jesus. The worship was off the chain, and Craig Rochelle was just brilliant. I beg to differ. Uh, The reason why is because... um, I listened with both my head and my heart. I listened with an open Bible. And as a result of it, um, I came to the conclusion that what I heard at the Code Orange Revival wasn't off the chain. It wasn't amazing. It was sad. It was shallow. It was narcissistic. It was a false gospel. Stephen Furtick and Craig Rochelle kicked off, launched the uh, Code Orange revival 
literally with false doctrine, Bible twisting, narcissistic eisegesis, which we refer to on this program as narcissus, and uh, and it, it's it was just a complete and utter train wreck. And here's the sad part. Uh, over and again, I hear from prominent evangelical leaders in the Christian church about their desire for there to be an outbreak of a major revival in the United States. This kind of preaching will not, will not produce a revival. It will not produce a movement, at least a movement of God, nothing of the sort. Uh, revival comes when, uh, at least true revival, if if I understand the term correctly, Revival really comes when people are confronted with their sins, confronted with their wretchedness, confronted with their sinful condition and their rebellion against God, and have Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins placarded as the only solo by itself solution, so that people are basically hearing a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. It's not what we got from the Code Orange revival. What we, In fact, if you were following me on Twitter, I was doing a play-by-play uh, listening to it last night. And I, you know, I got to tell you, you know, <laughs> I'm not happy with you, Stephen Furtick, for many reasons. But one of the reasons I'm unhappy with you uh, is because for the next 12 nights, I've got to literally grind my teeth listening in on this stuff in order to cover the story. Oh, man. So uh, what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, if you're not familiar with the Code Orange Revival, we're, the whole program is going to be dedicated to it. What we're going to start off with is uh, around Christmas time, uh, Stephen Furtick uh, you know, talked about the Code Orange Revival. I'm going to play a segment from that sermon where he explains what it is so that you can hear from himself, uh, from Stephen Furtick himself, what it's all about. And then we're going to switch gears and we're going to listen to Stephen Furtick uh, leading off, introing uh, Craig Rochelle, Craig Rochelle preaching, and then Stephen Furtick ending uh, the Code Orange revival, uh, you know, night one. And uh, I think a good way to, um, you know, I think a good subheading for this would be um, a new star is born in the world of televangelism. Have you ever wondered where do televangelists come from? How are they created? Well, Last night, a televangelist was created in uh, Stephen Furtick. Uh, by the way, uh, TBN is uh, picking up and covering and will be rebroadcasting uh, all of the different nights of the Code Orange revival. I mean, you're wondering, where did folks like Benny Hinn and T.D. Jakes come from? Well, these were, uh, well, guys who, well, bought into the false message of TBN Word, faith, heresy, preaching to uh, scratch-itching ears, uh, money-shilling type guys that, that are dynamic communicators, great in their rhetoric, amazing in their delivery, the ability to speak to the heart. But what's missing? God's word rightly preached. Christ and him crucified for our sins. Well, that, that gets... Um, Mixed with other messages, and that's what you're going to hear today. So uh, what I could strongly recommend, it's going to take the whole program to unpack this. It's going to take us all the whole program. And what I'm going to do by way of comparison so that you understand you know, a, a good reference point, if, you, if you're new to listening to Fighting for the Faith and you just can't believe that I would have the audacity to say 
that uh, the Code Orange revival last night wasn't a move of God. Believe me, it wasn't. Um, and and that the gospel wasn't really preached. I'm going to give you uh, a, a sample of what it sounds like to have the gospel preached. The real problem of mankind uh, uh, t- dealt with, addressed, proclaimed, and Christ and Him crucified for our sins preached. Now it's going to be uh, it's going to be something that regular listeners to Fighting for the Faith have heard before. And it's uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's uh, chapel sermon entitled Christianity in Five Verses. Now, I recently played it on the program. I played it on Reformation Day of 2011. So um, I played it twice last year. I played it in February of last year. and I also played it in October. And so I apologize for the redundancy, but I could think of no better uh, uh, juxtaposition, if you would, uh, to what it is we heard in the Code Orange revival. So, um, yeah, so what we're going to do, like I said, we're going to let Furtick explain the Code Orange revival. We're going to again go to last night's audio from the event, and uh, we're going to uh, we're going to chime in and and uh, do some corrective work and point out the false teaching and narcissism is going on uh, in that sermon, and uh, both in Furtick's uh, presentation as well as Craig Rochelle's. And uh, and then we'll play Dr. Rosenblatt's uh, chapel sermon as a, as a good counterpoint, so that people can understand the real danger that they're in in attending Stephen Furtick's uh, church. I mean, Furtick is a master marketer. He is a tenacious bulldog of a man when it comes to uh, following his ideas. He believes that he's following God's plan and vision for uh, the church. Um, I would say not, that's a, a strongly debatable point. But regardless of the source, he really believes he's following God's will for his life. The problem is is that he is self-deceived. He's narcissistic. He's the only man that I know who could, without blushing, take a passage that's clearly about Jesus and twist it and make it about himself. It's absolutely breathtakingly unbelievable. And uh, it, this isn't Christianity that he preaches. He, he well, because Stephen Furtick isn't Christianity. Jesus is. Christianity is all about Christ and what He's done for us. The the biblical gospel isn't about you and your life change. The biblical gospel is about what Jesus Christ has done. God in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It's all about what God has done in Christ to save sinners like you and like me. But uh, don't tell that to Stephen Furtick because really uh, he's, he's found a way to manipulate the Bible in such a way that he can make it all about him and all about you. That's the kind of stuff that sends people to hell. It doesn't bring them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. It keeps them in the um, in the driver's seat, makes them God, and Jesus is their butler. So, yeah, I know it sounds kind of harsh, but, yeah, you're going to need to, you know, grab something to drink, fuzzy bunny slippers to make yourself comfortable, um, you know, all of the normal stuff. And since we're doing a Stephen Furtick uh, update and uh, the whole program is dedicated to him, That requires us to play our Stephen Furtick update music. Here we go. He walked into the party like you were 
Sing along. You're so vain. You probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. You probably think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? Yeah, that's right. I just love doing a duet with Carly Simon. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> That's right. In a previous life, I was a lounge lizard, and I used to wear, you know, uh, polyester, um, comfortable stuff. I mean, you know. <laughs> anyway, all right, so let's dive into our program proper. And uh, here's Stephen Furtick explaining to the folks at Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, just around Christmas time, what the Code Orange revival is about, so that you understand what it is we're talking about here. You know, Basically, starting last night and then for the next 12 days, starting from yesterday, night after night after night, it's a supposedly an old-school revival that God the Holy Spirit told Stephen Furtick to um, organize, plan, and execute on. Um, I, think it, I think what this really is is uh, 12 nights of launching... Um, Stephen Furtick into the constellation of TBN tele-evangelists. I think it's just a matter of time before he starts manipulating the folks at Elevation Church to send in their seed offerings. Of course, you know, this is uh, you know, would make sense cons- considering that he has such props for um, uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes and guys like that. But anyway, um, here's Stephen Furtick explaining the Code Orange revival. Here we go. We always start each year doing something to bring us together and seek God in an increased way. And the scripture teaches that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will be added to you. So we've got to point this out. Yeah, that's from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, Matthew chapter six, Seek seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When you read it in context, it becomes clear that what Christ is talking about, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that would be uh, the the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift by grace through faith. Yeah, this is fleshed out in other portions of Scripture, uh, but I digress. We continue. Done things like fast before where we went uh, an extended time without food. Um, I remember that last year we did an 11-day fast, some of us on the staff and leaders, for 2011, you know. And uh, I asked the staff coming back, you know, getting ready for this year, I said, what do you think the Lord wants us to do uh, this year? You think he wants us to do a fast? And they were like, you know, actually, no, we've been praying about it. <laughs> Lord hadn't spoken that to, to us. And um, so here's, here's how it happened. I was just praying. We need to seek God in a great way to begin 2012. I want our whole church to do it. And the number 12 is one of the most significant numbers in the Bible. You can get carried away uh, of trying to make numbers mean things in the Bible. We, we see that happen from time to time in our culture. But Yeah, like with William Tapley, who is a regular feature here at, uh, at Fighting for the Faith. How, however, that being the case, Furtick is right on this point. The number 12 is a significant number in Scripture, and you don't have to engage in bizarre William Tapley-esque um, biblical numerology puzzles in order to uh, to figure that out. So, you know, I, I want to make sure you don't think he's a crackpot here. He's not. Actually, what he's saying here is uh, legitimate and correct, biblically. But there's no doubt about it. The number 12, when it's in the Bible, it always symbolizes God's order. And probably the most prominent example I can give to you of that would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it's no coincidence that Jesus... 
Notice the sappy, emotionally manipulative music behind him. Furtick is about the only guy that I'm aware of that uh, has the sappy, manipulative music playing at both the beginning and the end of his sermons. He, you know, he really relies on that sappy music. Jesus called 12 disciples. There's all kinds of examples, and I could, I could list a lot for you, but suffice it to say the number 12 is really important. So as I thought about the year 2012, um, I knew we wanted to do something big. I had this idea, what if we did an old school revival? Uh, I don't know if you grew up in a church background or not, but where you just have meetings night after night after night where you get so drenched with the word and the spirit of God that it, it carries into the rest of your year. And just, you know, there's, there's nothing better than an increased time and, and, a, and a heightened focus in God's presence. But drenched in the word in the spirit hmm so uh, the purpose of the uh, revival is some kind of spiritual soaking thing going on that supposedly includes god's word okay since it was the year 2012 i wanted to do a 12 night revival well i tried to talk myself out of that because i know how difficult that will be to do 12 successive nights but you know i just kept praying about it, couldn't let the idea go. And what really sent me over the edge to do this revival, I just wanted you to know this, is that we, um, we made a list of the 12 preachers all over the world that we would want. If anybody could come, who would be the 12 we'd want? And when they all accepted for the first date that I texted them, 11 of them within 24 hours, I just had this, maybe God is in this kind of moment. Uh, of maybe this is something God so that's a sign so this is the miracle that uh, that he's pointing to supposed miracle that he's pointing to that shows that God is in this let's take a look at the uh, lineup for the code orange revival Craig Groeschel lifechurch.tv we've reviewed his sermons here at fighting for the faith and he's shown himself to be a seeker-driven narcissistic eisegete and twister of God's word. Jensen Franklin, word faith heretic. Now, the, uh, here's some hope. Matt Chandler of the Village Church. Matt Chandler is a guy who I have a lot of deep respect for, and uh, and he has consistently shown himself to be a, a decent handler and, and good exegete, and uh, somebody who understands that the biblical text, all of it, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus Christ. In fact, we're going to be hearing from Matt uh, very shortly before we get into uh, the, uh, the 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 actual Code Orange revival uh, sermon from last night. Christine Kane, um, Christine Kane. Let's see. Known for her ability to communicate profound messages of hope and inspiration. Uh-huh. She's part of the Hillsong gang down there in Australia. She's a word faith heretic. Uh, Ed Young, uh, senior pastor of Fellowship Church, uh, uh, most no recently known for his bed-in that he's going to be doing. Apparently, he's coming in Sunday night. So Friday night, uh, Ed Young and his wife are going to spend 24 hours on the roof of, 20, of uh, Fellowship Church in order to launch uh, his latest book, Sex Experiment. And then Sunday, he uh, hops on board his private jet and flies to um, Charlotte to uh, preach at... 
um okay yeah so at the uh at the uh code orange revival israel halton i'm not familiar with him we'll have to see what he's all about perry noble sheep beater extraordinaire twister of god's word and somebody who has yeah, who's also known for you know such crazy things as playing crazy train in his church uh, yeah um and uh <laughs> and highway to hell to start off um an easter service uh yeah there'll be acdc song stovall weems another guy who we you know who flirts with the uh, uh word faith heresy kevin gerald uh this is a joel osteen wannabe um then we've got td jakes Senior pastor of the Potter's House, T.D. Jakes, the modalist, the man throughout his adult ministry, who has, uh, well, he believes the 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 Sabellian modalistic heresy regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, which means he doesn't even believe in the biblical God. He actually believes in an idol, uh, who has been evasive, to say the least, when it comes to questions regarding the Godhead. Uh, James McDonald of the uh, <clears throat> Elephant in the Room conference um, yeah, that'll be all kinds of fun. That's coming up at the end of the month. Can't hardly wait for that, where apparently we're going to hear T.D. Jakes affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. At least James McDonald is absolutely sure he can somehow, you know, get him to say enough of the right words to get the modalistic monkey off of T.D. Jakes's back. I don't think that's really going to happen. And then to, uh, you know, the, the closer, of course, is Stephen Furtick himself. And all of these are being uh, recorded and uh, broadcast on Elevation's new uh, church network uh, television site uh, and um, will be broadcast on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, home of such wonderful heretical televangelists that uh, I'm sure that, uh, that Stephen Furtick will find his place among the constellation of uh, heretical word faith stars there at TBN. So, okay, so that's the Code Orange Revival lineup, and Stephen Furtick considers it a miracle of God that when he texted all of these guys, that they all agreed to uh, to come speak on the date that they were asked, uh, with the exception of, uh, J- of uh, Matt Chandler. Um, I don't really see anybody on the list here that impresses me as somebody who's orthodox. Everybody else is theologically and doctrinally and methodologically and ecclesiologically compromised. Uh, not the least of which is uh, T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick. So, yeah, we've got some big, 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 big problems here. And that is, is that um, the folks in Charlotte and, and those around the world who've bought into the hype regarding the Code Orange revival, that this is somehow a move of God. Uh, my question is, how could it possibly be a move of God when uh, the people being featured, with the exception of one, maybe two guys, um, are all theologically and doctrinally compromised and preach a different gospel and are known for their Bible twisting rather than their faithful exegesis of the biblical text? How is it possible that this is a word of God? Or how is it possible that this was a miracle uh, orchestrated by God to get all of these people uh, to come and, and uh, you know, speak at uh, this so-called revival? What are they reviving? All the ancient heresies? God really wants us to do. I had one of our speakers cancel an international event because that person felt so led to be here. And I had uh, all kinds of people saying, whatever, whenever we're there, 
we want to help your church start the year off and so we're going to do that in just a few days have 12 nights of powerful powerful meetings with God and we're inviting our whole church to be a part and rather than just go through a lot of information about it today I want to go to the Word of God and share with you a biblical vision of what we hope to see God do in our church over those 12 nights of revival uh, if you brought your Bible please now I'm gonna let him get at least start to put his toe in the water biblically but uh, we're not gonna hear this full sermon so um, if you want to catch the whole thing, you can view it online at elevationchurch.org. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And if you're nervous about finding Ezekiel in your Bible, take your time. It's a pretty long passage. You can probably get there by the time I finish reading. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the scriptures on the screen for you. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. I want to read to you a vision passage for our revival the Bible says in Ezekiel 37 verse 1 the prophet is communicating his experience with the Lord and he says the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley it was full of bones he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley bones that were very dry he asked me son of man can these bones live I said "O sovereign Lord you alone know then he said to me prophesy to these bones and say to them dry bones hear the word of the Lord this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones I will make breath enter you and you will come to life everybody say come to life a revival happens when dead things come to life. Okay, now, I'm going to agree with Stephen here. A revival happens when dead things come to life. If that's how we're going to define revival, I couldn't agree more. Now, when we talk about revival then... Um, what is it that is the dead thing that comes to life uh, that supposedly a revival is all about? Well, let me give you a second passage, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you, speaking to the uh, folks at the church in Ephesus there, uh, referring back to before they were believers, Paul says, And you, y'all, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." So if we're going to talk about revival, okay, I'm not going to, I'm, at the moment, I'm not going to take issue with the term itself. I think there's some serious problems in American evangelicalism that is the carryover and leftovers of American revivalism. But uh, if we're going to try to redeem the term itself, revival, I'm going to agree with Stephen here. A revival occurs when God breathes life into a dead thing. 
And what the Bible calls for, if we were to use the word revival and kind of use it elastically here, is for dead sinners. Sinners dead in trespasses and sins to be born again, to be raised to life, to be regenerated. And how does a dead sinner go from being dead in trespasses and sins to being alive in Jesus Christ? There's only one way. They have to be preached to, and not just any message. They have to be preached the gospel, the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Okay? And that's kind of the point that Paul here is continuing to make. So let me read again, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. No, this is the gift of God. And it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here in this passage, the opening portion of Ephesians chapter 2, we get this great microcosm, this picture of all of us being dead in trespasses and sins as a result of the fact that we are by nature all descended from Adam and Eve, who rebelled against God, and we've inherited from them their corrupted sinful nature. We've inherited from them the sin that they've committed. It's been imputed to us. We are all now sinners by nature, dead in trespasses and sins, and God makes dead sinners alive by his mercy. The preaching of Jesus Christ, forgiving sins as a result of his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross. That's where God shows us his mercy. And when if you're going to have a revival, then this has to be the center, the focus, the obsession of the revival. If you're truly going to have sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins brought to life, being reborn, being regenerated, being revived by God the Holy Spirit, because without the preaching of the cross, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, dead things simply remain dead. All right, we're going to pause right there. I'm, we're going to take a break, pay some bills, and when we come back, we're going to dive into the, uh, the uh, revival audio itself 
and review it without any further um, breaks. So, but uh, we, we got to pay some bills here. So, uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. 
It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I better replace it then. Let's see here. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Uh, uh, well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop, and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, the Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus and what he's done for you. We'll explain a little bit more of that in a minute here. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to support us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, now, in order to kind of set a little bit more foundation before we get into reviewing what happened at the Code Orange Revival last night, what I'd like to do is play for you a short three-minute video by tomorrow night's Code Orange speaker, Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler has recently begun publishing videos on the Internet, YouTube and Vimeo, that have to do with something he's calling the Gospel Project. And in this short video, Chandler explains why you don't 
read yourself into the biblical text. Now, here on the program, Fighting for the Faith, we refer to that as uh, narcissistic eisegesis, or to shorten it, narcissus. Now, narcissism, you, that's the love of self, and eisegesis is a theological term which means that you are reading in your own, you're reading your own ideas into the biblical text. That's not what you're supposed to do. The biblical text reveals what God wants us to know and to understand. And so the right way of handling God's word is to exegete, read out what God has put into the scriptures that he wants us to know, understand, and believe. So eisegesis is a bad thing. And narcissistic eisegesis or narcissus is a doubly bad thing. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that really, really deceives you and causes you to miss the whole point of the Bible because the Bible's not about me and it's not about you. It's the story of what God has done to save rebel sinners like you and like me. And so really the Bible's all about Jesus. And even Jesus himself makes this clear. In one particular incident where Jesus was having uh, a rather heated discussion with the religious leaders of his day there in uh, first century uh, Israel, Palestine, he he said to them, you diligently search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's what Jesus said. So Jesus himself believed that the scriptures were about him. And you're thinking, well, well what makes him qualified to say that? Well, he's God in human flesh, and he proved it by raising himself from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So to kind of give you the idea of how to properly handle God's word, here's Matt Chandler from the Gospel Project explaining um, the dangers of reading yourself into the biblical text, otherwise known as Narsa Jesus. Okay, there's two ways to look at the Bible. Um, one of the ways that I hear most commonly in, in churches is that the Bible is a roadmap to life. And, and I, I kind of understand what, what's trying to be communicated there, that, that if you need to know where to go, if you need to know what to do, if you need to know how to handle a situation, you go to the roadmap. You find where you are, and then you follow your way out. Now, I, I, I do get what's being communicated there, but I think there's some problems with that, namely that, that the Bible, when all said and done, is ultimately not about you and not about me, but rather about what God has done in Jesus Christ to reconcile the universe to himself and to reconcile mankind to himself. And so by viewing the scriptures in that way, I believe you kind of set yourself up for uh, heartache and despair. So let me let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you take a simple story like the story of uh, David and Goliath, uh, what, what a lot of people will do who view the Bible as a roadmap to life or who view the scriptures as rather that the Bible is about them is they'll take the story of David and Goliath and they'll make themselves David and they'll make Goliath whatever opposition they're fighting in their life. So maybe it's debt, maybe it's a difficult marriage, maybe it's something like that. But what they do is, I'm David, this is Goliath, so I need to go get my five stones. I need to figure out how I'm going to defeat this giant. And with God's power, I'm going to overcome this giant. And, and, and the reason I say that this view of the scriptures can set you up for despair and ultimately enslave you is uh, what happens when your stone misses? 
Uh, what, what happens when you throw all five stones and all five stones miss? What, what happens when with all your effort and all your might and all your power, you don't slay the giant? Well, well, now there's guilt, now there's shame, now there's remorse, now there's frustration, now there's, well, maybe this doesn't work. Where is God? How could he betray me like this? The story of David and Goliath is a picture of what Colossians would call a shadow of what was to come in Christ. So that, that Christ is the substance and David Goliath is, the story of David and Goliath is the shadow. So yes, David and Goliath, a historic, actual occurrence, but in that God was communicating to us and to Israel that a Savior was going to come and was going to slay the giant of sin and death once and for all. And so what happens when we read the story of David and Goliath, you see that ultimately you're not David, that Jesus the Christ is David, and that Goliath is sin and death. You and I are Israel shaking in the corner, not knowing what to do, being afraid to combat, and Jesus comes and is our victor. And so what happens when we read the story of David and Goliath and don't see ourselves overcoming the giant, but rather see that God has made a provision for us in Christ and that Christ then overcomes the giant, our hearts are free to worship and make much of Jesus because it's not on us to overcome the giant, but rather we have a champion who will overcome the giant for us. And one of the things I love about the Gospel Project is it's going to bring and shine a light on so many of these great stories that we know and show how ultimately they're leading us to worship more what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, what God has accomplished in the Gospel for us. All right. So there's Matt Chandler from the Gospel Project and the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, tomorrow night's Code Orange speaker. So we have uh, high hopes and expectations for Matt Chandler, that he will actually preach the biblical gospel and not engage in Narsa Jesus uh, when uh, he's uh, granted the ability to speak at Furtick's uh, event tomorrow night. But uh, as far as after that, I don't have very much hope for the remaining speakers that we're going to hear the biblical gospel. But Chandler makes a great point, and he's absolutely right. The Bible's not about you, and you're not David. And the story of David and Goliath is not some kind of a model for you overcoming uh, the problems in your life, whether it's debt, uh, a challenging relationship, problems at work, problems with family members or friends, psychological problems, or or you know maybe some you know some challenge that just came out of left field that you know, you need to go grab your five stones and slay the giant. That's not what the text is about. The text points us to Jesus Christ and the real problem that each and every one of us faces. And that problem is, is that we're all dead in trespasses and sins. The giant for every single one of us, the thing that enslaves every single one of us is sin, death, and the devil. So Jesus is the one who's overcome. Jesus is the one who's slain those giants, if you would. Uh, for us, and that, and the, the story of David and Goliath points us to Jesus. Your job, your job isn't to be David, the son of David. Jesus Christ is the one who slayed that giant for us. So, yeah, so he makes a good point, and we're going to see if how this plays out now that you've kind of got the category in your mind as to what happened last night at the Code Orange revival. So, without any further ado, let's dive into it, and we'll we'll go until this is done. Uh, now, about to take the stage is Stephen Furtick to uh, talk and give us some opening thoughts before Craig Rochelle uh, comes on to deliver his message. Here we go.
somebody needed to sing that tonight. You feel weak. You feel defeated. You feel lost. You feel lonely. You feel frustrated with yourself. You feel condemned. You feel shameful. You feel sluggish. You feel overwhelmed. You feel stressed. And God brought you to Code Orange Revival. However, he brought you here. You may be here with us at one of our Charlotte locations. You may be watching on the Elevation Network. You may have tuned in and you're joining us on television, but make no mistake about it. God brought you into an atmosphere of miraculous possibility of second chances. Got to pause. <clears throat> Notice the sappy music in the background. So, and what was the litany of things that he described there? Frustration at life. All of those problems are the fruit of the root problem, our sin and rebellion against God. We live in a cursed creation, and we, um, all of us, are, well, dead. By nature, born dead in trespasses and sins. And each and every one of us, even though we're physically alive and breathing, are working our way rather rapidly towards our ultimate death. And all of the problems we experience in life, from hunger, pain, suffering, broken relationships, challenges that we have just in the day-to-day -to -day toil to pay our bills, inability to pay our bills, all of these things are the results of our problem sin. Now notice that Stephen here is making it sound like God is getting ready to work some kind of a big miracle in your life to alleviate the um, temporal consequences of sin in your life. Huh, I don't recall any promises in scripture where God promises to do that. So we've got a problem. Healing, hope, restoration. We welcome you to Code Orange Revival. Believing God to blow our minds, to change our lives, to change our families, to change our city, our nation, our world. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a Amway pep rally. We are so excited to welcome you and isn't it wonderful to be in the presence of God and acknowledge Him and honor Him? Wow. I need you to uh, turn around and high five 12 people. Because it's the first of 12 nights. Wherever you're watching this, you can air high five 12 people if you're watching this alone. Just fist pump. <laughs> Welcome Matthew's location. Welcome Trinity Broadcasting Network, God TV. We want to welcome. Yep, welcome Trinity Broadcasting Network. Like I said, a star is born in the televangelist constellation. And I don't think that's a good thing. I can't recall a single televangelist who rightly handles God's word and doesn't shill for money. The Elevation Network, we're fired up, we're excited. God's about to do something special in our lives. God's about to do something special in our lives. How do you know that? Did God tell you directly? Because he doesn't say that in, this, in the Bible. Amen. 
Go to G, Eric. Go to G. I was thinking of this hymn that's so appropriate for us to sing as we enter into a season of revival. And I want you to know that you're in a place tonight where you can reach out to the Lord without judgment, without condemnation, or without fear. We used to sing a song in the church where I grew up that said, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. This is a song that was on my heart all day getting ready for this revival. It said, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. This is the part I really love. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee, oh, bless me now, my I come to thee. Can we sing that again? I dare you to lift your hands in the air. You may have never done that before, but you can just reach up right now. Touch the Lord. Say, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Hopeless. Oh, point something out those will be your typical uh, revivalistic type songs okay and generally though they're sung at the end of the revival and only after you've been raked over the the coals of hellfire and brimstone and then told about the shed blood of christ on the cross for your sins just want to make sure you understand that so i mean it's nice that he gives you know some kind of props to old school revivalism if you would by singing songs that would be part of the altar call not that i'm a fan of the altar call not even close but i mean you, you get what's going on here it, it, it's a little backwards each night of the revival i hope to be able to share just a brief ministry thought with you before we hear from our primary speakers and we're going to try to share those thoughts each ministry moment of each night of the revival from something we call our code at Elevation Church. And, and our code is just our 12 core values, what makes us distinctive as a church. And
Okay, going to point something out here. So we're going to get some ministry ideas from the code of Elevation Church, which, by the way, you can find on their website. And uh, I think the code is one of the most troubling things on the uh, Elevation website. And uh, the reason I say that is because there's some stuff in there that makes you just go, what? By the way, you can find it if you go to elevationchurch.org. They have a button along the top that says new, question mark. When you hover over it, you'll see that a drop-down menu appears, and then you can click on the code. When you get there, let me read the code to you. There's some stuff in here that should make you wonder what's going on there at Elevation Church. Here's what it says. The code is our core set of values at Elevation Church. It sets the tone and the trajectory for how we get things done. Somehow, it looks to me like uh, Stephen Furtick and the folks there at Elevation Church uh, seem to believe that they are so unique and different that they get to have their own unique code for their own particular congregation. Weird that uh, no other congregation um, prior to Elevation had this code. Mm, Anyway, but uh, so here's what they say. If the mission is the compass, the code is the map that gives us direction. So number one, we act in audacious faith. In order to dominate a city with the gospel of Jesus, mm-hmm. we can't think of we can't think small. We will set impossible goals, take bold steps of faith, and then watch God move. Number two, we are a generation of honor. We freely give honor to those above us, beside us, and under us because of the calling and potential God has placed inside of them. We lead the way in generosity. Our staff and church will go above and beyond to give sacrificially to the work of God in our city. We, number four, we are united under one vision. Elevation is built on the vision that God gave Pastor Stephen. Yeah, that would be prophetic vision. In part number four there of their code makes it clear that Stephen Furtick is claiming special prophetic vision from God. And so Elevation is built on this unique vision that God apparently gave to Stephen Furtick. And here's what they say. We will aggressively defend our unity and that vision. In other words, Stephen Furtick is, we really should be referring to him as the prophet Stephen Furtick. Uh, We should be referring to him as the man of God, Stephen Furtick. If you contradict Stephen Furtick, then you're contradicting the man of God. That is a big problem because that's not what God's word says about pastors. They're not called to that. They're called to do one thing, and that's to preach the word and proclaim Christ, not themselves. So um, Elevation Church is united around, for lack of a better way of putting it, a cult leader, C-U-L-T. This is not good. The, the, The visionary man of God. So, um, number five, we need your seat. We will not cater to personal preference in our mission to reach the city. We are more concerned with the people we're trying to reach than the people that we're trying to keep. In other words, if you're already there, they don't care about you. They only care about the people who are not there yet. So, if you're there, your job is to get behind the vision. Don't ask questions and don't expect to get fed the word of God. And don't you dare complain because Stephen Furtick is the visionary and you better not dishonor him. Read the code. Again, read the code. 
You can find it at elevationchurch.org. We continue. And they're available. You can get them online if you're here with us live at Code Orange Revival. You can get them at the Orange Tent. But I just wanted to take this first part of the year. That's the vision of Code Orange Revival is to take 12 nights to prepare ourselves for God to do greater things in 2012. And, you know, there are 12 code elements in the code that our, our church tries to operate by. And I want to take one of those each night if possible and just share very briefly on it and minister to your life. It'd be a great way, not only for our church to know what we're all about and remind ourselves, but for those. So he's going to minister to our life from Elevation Church's code rather than the word of God. Weird. Who ever heard of such a thing? Those of you watching all over the world, uh, maybe for your church or your ministry, your small group, your business, your family or your life, I believe this will apply to you. And um, I want you to just put that simple graphic on the screen, guys, where it has our 12 code values. And you can see them all at a glance, maybe, if they put that up there. The one I want to focus in on tonight will be very familiar to you if you're a part of Elevation Church. One of our primary things, in fact, I would say the driving uh, determination of our church is we act in audacious faith. It's a, it's a statement of our desire to always obey God with great intensity. And so I just... We want to obey God with great intensity. Hmm. It's a problematic phrase. Now, it's not to say that Christians are not to obey God. They are. But um, for any of us to say that we obey God intensely or something like that would be a, a severe overstatement. Because each and every human being, Christians alike, still have a sinful nature unregenerate, that's all they really have is their uh, sinful nature. But those who are alive in Jesus Christ have a new nature and 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 also a sinful nature that they've inherited from Adam and Eve. And so daily, Christians still sin. Sin daily and sin much. This is why when Jesus, when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, part of what Jesus in, you know included that should be spoken and asked for by disciples of Jesus Christ on a daily basis is for the forgiveness of sins. If you're not familiar with the Lord's Prayer, it begins with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So no real Christian really has the arrogance to believe that they're obeying God audaciously or put whatever adverb you want behind it. Um, the reality is, is that daily Christians sin much. They sin against God and neighbor in thought, word, and deed by the things they do and the things that they don't do. And so... Yeah, to talk about obeying God, you know, you know, adverbially, you know, I just name the adverb. That's that's silly. That's absolutely silly, and and in a sense shows a, a lack of understanding about just how sinful we really truly are, including Christians. We continue. I just wanted to share one thought about faith tonight, wherever you may be in your life, and simple thought from a verse in the book of Romans, chapter four, verse nineteen. And that verse is speaking about Abraham, and it says this about Abraham. He 
wanted to have a son, and they couldn't have a son. Okay, now, backing this up. If you have your Bible, you need to go over to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to back this up 15-ish seconds here, because I want you to hear what he's doing with this passage. This is the first official Bible twisting of the night that occurred last night at the Code Orange Revival, and this is exactly the thing that Matt Chandler pointed out you ought not to be doing with the biblical text. Listen to what he does here. Let me back this up. Here we go. I just wanted to share one thought about faith tonight, wherever you may be in your life, and simple thought from a verse in the book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 19. And that verse is speaking about Abraham, and it says this about Abraham. He wanted to have a son, and he couldn't have a son. And he needed a son because God had made him a promise. And in order for God to fulfill his promise, he would need a son to carry on his lineage. And it looked like the time had run out for Abraham. You'll see why in this verse. He was very old. But the Bible says something about Abraham's faith, his willingness to trust God. And I believe it will speak to you tonight. Our, our whole theme. And all of the teaching tonight will be about dead since he was about a hundred years old. That's a good reason to feel discouraged in your desire to have a child. Now, there was a little bit of a break there. Point that he's reading is, is that the reason why Abraham was feeling discouraged apparently was because he was about a hundred years old. Well, that's going to be a little bit of a, you know downer when it comes to having children. Notice what he's doing about this text. He's just focusing on the temporal issue here. But this passage from Romans chapter 4 is actually discussing something far more important than whether or not God was going to meet Abraham's temporal needs. Listen in, though. And he didn't even have all the doctors we have. And Abraham had a promise that didn't match up with his reality. He had an expectation and a hope that didn't match up with his situation or his circumstance. But it says without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah, his wife's womb, was also dead. This is the statement that I wrote down that I want to minister to you. We're going to sing another song of worship and just allow you to reflect and really open your heart to God wherever you're watching this as we begin this revival. This Code Orange revival. Code Orange itself, as a phrase, means urgent, desperate situations. It's where so many of you are today. It's where our nation is. That's where our, our world is. Desperate situation and desperate need of God. But yet I want to tell you, based on Romans 4.19, I want to encourage you to face the facts, but keep your faith. I'm preaching a lot better than you'll say amen. I could use some help, you know. This is going all over the world. These people are going to think you don't like the Bible. <laughs> so face the facts but keep your faith is what Romans 4.19 is about? I hope you have your Bible open to Romans chapter 4 because that's not what this passage says. And I'll show you from con the context. It's not what's going on here. I said, Abraham faced the facts. Did you see that? Put the verse again. It says, without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact. I, I said, put the verse up there again. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact. And so to say that we want to have audacious faith and believe God for great things doesn't mean that we live in a fantasy world. 
and to trust God to do big things in our life or in your church or in your family or in your business. Some of you are watching this. Okay, trust God in your life, in your family, in your business. Now, let me just ask the obvious question. Do you personally have a direct revelation promise from God regarding your family, your business, your life, your whatever? Can you rightly say that your life here parallels Abraham's life? So that you just need to believe God for these promises the way Abraham did? Where has God promised you anything regarding making your life, your business, your family, your whatever spectacular? I can't say that that the Bible teaches that because it doesn't. In fact, that's not what this passage is teaching. So uh, let's take a look at Romans chapter 4. In fact, in order to understand this, we have to back up into Romans chapter 3 a little bit and uh, to, to get what's going on. Because in Romans chapter 3, uh, Paul is kind of finishing up uh, a, a, an extended argument. I don't mean like, you know, go and have a fight with, uh, you know, your neighbor argument. But uh, think, of, think of argument here like in the term of a debate or a legal case being built. And he's building up a legal case against you and against me and against all of humanity. And basically trying to point us to the real problem that we all face. Romans chapter 3 verse 9 is what says, here's what it says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here the Apostle Paul is quoting from the Psalms and makes it clear that each and every one of us, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, male or a female, it doesn't matter who you are or what time you were born in human history, each and every one of us, not one of us is righteous, not even one. The exception is Jesus Christ, but he's the virgin-born Son of God. Okay, So this is the picture. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. None is righteous. No one seeks God. We've all turned aside from God. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 then continues. So now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law. This is important. So how I'm stopping here because I want to point something out here. So Paul lays out the problem. We're all dead. We're all, none of us is righteous. None of us seeks God. We're all in a heap of trouble. Okay. So how do we get out of this predicament? Is there any hope for us, or are we all hell-bound? Okay. Well, the one solution that is not a solution is that we save ourselves by trying to be good. And by trying to be good, what that means is trying to keep God's law. If you're not sure what that is, go to Exodus chapter 20, where you can find the Ten Commandments. And just try to keep them. 
Well, if you're going to save yourself by being good, that means trying to save yourself by works of the law. But the Apostle Paul here says this, For by works of the law, no human being, not even one, will be justified. Justified means to be declared righteous. Okay, think of it as a legal term. So by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, now this leads to an important category that we all need to understand. If we are to understand why did God give us the Ten Commandments, the answer, he didn't give us the Ten Commandments in order to save us, at least save us in this sense. By keeping them, we can save ourselves, by being good, by being obedient. It's not the purpose of the law. Here, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, by works of the law. You can put in some you know, synonyms here. By being a good person, okay? By trying to be moral, by being obedient to what God demands, no human being will be declared righteous, okay? Why? Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of God's law, the primary purpose is to show you and to show me that we are sinners, that we are unrighteous, and we stand condemned before God because we have rebelled against him and sinned against him. Now here comes the gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart, separate, completely distinct and away from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Remember the passage he quoted earlier from Matthew chapter 6? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Here in Romans chapter 3, verse verses 21, 22, this all lays out clearly what it means, uh, this righteousness of God. It says, "For but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means and we're declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That propitiate means to basically ricochet off the wrath of God or to push it away. So Christ's blood propitiates the wrath of God. And it this grace, this forgiveness is received, and this righteousness is received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So God justifies the one who has faith in Christ, because by works of the law, by obedience, not one person is saved. So Romans chapter 3.27. So what becomes of our boasting? Well, that's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. A person is declared righteous or justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. 
Okay, that's what this passage teaches. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Now we're into chapter 4. So Paul then tries to explain that this is what the Bible teaches going all the way back to the Old Testament. And he focuses in on the early chapters of the book of Genesis on Abraham, who was considered the man of faith of the Old Testament. So what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to flesh? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, if he was justified by works, well, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now, this is the question. Was Abraham, was he declared righteous by God by being obedient, or was he declared righteous by God by believing and trusting in God. Okay? Abraham, here's what it says. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Well, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Keep that in mind. The law brings wrath. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, 
but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So in this passage, it's interesting, the way Stephen Furtick is using this passage, he's keying in only on verse 19 about the temporal thing that Abraham was going through. But Abraham, remember, had a specific promise from God regarding a temporal thing that he would have offspring, would have a son. So, um, yeah, the thing is here is is that that temporal thing points us to the real thing. Remember, as Matt Chandler pointed out, the Old Testament, are, that's the types and the shadows pointing us to the real reality. And the real reality is this, is that we don't have a promise from God that God's going to make your life wonderful. In fact, Jesus promises his followers persecution and suffering. But we have promises regarding other things that we can hang our hat on, and this is the promise that's really talked about in this passage. The promises that you and I have directly from God do not pertain to our debt, to our career, to our marriage, to our children, or things like that. The promises that we have from God have to do with our salvation and our right standing with God. The promise we have from God is the forgiveness of our sins. Yeah, because that's why Jesus was on the cross. And we have the promise from God that our salvation is completely free and is given to us as a gift and received by simply believing, by simply trusting God and not wavering in our trust for, uh, of God for that, those promises, that the promise of the forgiveness of our sins. So it's weird here. So right off the bat, I mean, this, the first passage of Scripture that's even really alluded to in the Code Orange revival is ripped out of its context, and the real meaning has been poured on the ground as if it's like not even a worthy thing, so that somehow Stephen can make it look like God is promising you victory in your life. When, in fact, this passage is all about the sure and certain promise of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. We continue. In a place in the world where your hardship is beyond anything a lot of us in this room could imagine. And so we always have to face the fact God doesn't want us to live in a state of denial. You know, but, but Abraham didn't weaken in his faith. So that's what worship is all about. Yeah, and Abraham had a sure promise from God that regarding the birth of his son. And we have a sure promise from God regarding the forgiveness of our sins, but you're not talking about that. You're somehow equating the temporal with the eternal. That's what we're singing about. That's what we're, that's what we're gathering together to establish, is that God's truth is greater than our facts. So... That's true regarding our sin. Oh, the fact that's not he's talking. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about our sin. He's talking about our temporal problems. It may be that everyone in your family was an alcoholic, but the truth is, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. 
and you can be set free by the power of the gospel tonight. The fact may be you just went through a divorce and you feel worthless, but the truth is your worth is not determined by what happens to you, but by who Christ is inside of you and you can live again and you can hope again. You can keep your faith. That's what it means to have audacious faith. How I read about blind Bartimaeus in the Bible. Jesus was passing by and he needed a miracle and he was blind and he screamed out, Hey, Jesus! And everybody around him told him to shut up. And so the Bible says something interesting in Mark chapter 10. It says, so he cried out all the more. <laughs> when the devil tries to push you into believing that you're your faith is as good as dead you've just got to seek God all the more and love him all the more what is he talking about and serve him all the more see and so all the more he shouted out and he said Jesus son of David have mercy on me and and Jesus turned and looked in his direction and he asked him a question he said what do you want me to do for you As if Jesus needed to ask. The man was blind. He needed to see. But see, Jesus wanted him to express his faith. The all-powerful, ever-present, all-sufficient God is meeting with us tonight. And anything is possible, but you got to cry out in faith. You can't earn his blessing. You can't deserve his blessing. Everything is possible with God. That's not the gospel, and that's not what's talked about in Romans 4. Everything's possible with God, but you got to cry out in faith. Somehow turning faith into a work. Weird. But if you'll reach out in faith, he'll touch you tonight. Whatever your need may be. Really? So if you just reach out in faith, God will touch you no matter what your need may be. Huh. Yeah, um, okay, it sounds like Joel Osteen's best life now, but this isn't the biblical gospel. That's something completely different, and he didn't exegete that from any passage, did he? You ready to go after God with some audacious faith tonight? You ready to believe? So, yeah, you got to believe audaciously or you don't get the temporal blessing. Uh-huh, yeah, the Bible doesn't teach this. That your kids are going to come back to the Lord that God's going to breathe new life into your marriage, that God's going to raise you up to make a difference. Come on. God is here and anything is possible. Hallelujah. So, Lord. It sounds like one of those old-time miracle shows. Yeah, yeah. We call out to you tonight in the name of Jesus and on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are joining us for revival all over the world. We link our faith with theirs. And we want to say first and foremost that it's all about you, Jesus. We want you to receive glory, but we have desperate needs. And so may tonight be a night of audacious faith for us. not just. Well, well if it's all about Jesus, then you'd better be opening up the Bible and preaching about Jesus. We'll see what happens to see if Craig Groeschel makes it all about Jesus. Just that we sing loud and get hyper, but that we intend in our hearts to obey whatever you speak to us. We believe, Lord God, that you are able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine 
according to your power, which works mightily in us. If you believe our God is able, come on and shout to God. Let's lift up a song of worship, a song of praise. Come on, stand to your feet at every location, and let's worship our God, who is more than able. Hallelujah. Okay, so now they're singing a song about God being able, apparently able to fix all your uh, hiccups and burps in life. Um, let's fast forward through the song and let's get to Craig Rochelle's um, preaching. It's time for the Word of God to be preached in this house. Okay, so now it's time for the Word of God to be preached. Let's see if that's what happened last night. Was the Word of God preached? Yeah, Stephen prayed that it and said that it was all about Jesus. Let's see if God's word is opened and if it's all about Jesus or somebody else. Let's see. Hey, while I'm bringing out some extra people to fill the stage, I, I had an idea that we could have like a little mosh pit surround the stage because you can see this online or on television perhaps, but here at our Blakeney location as well as our Matthews location, We've got overflow crowds, just people busting out. The people who are clapping are the people who got a seat. Y'all are bad. Yeah, the people sitting, sitting in, their, in their car watching on their phone, they ain't clapping about that. But it is good to know that God is doing great things. These, these fine folks behind me are going to help our preacher preach tonight. And uh, we don't just have a preacher here tonight. Uh, we have with us tonight, um, I'm going to say this, and to some of you it'll sound a little melodramatic, but um, the greatest man of God that is in my life and the man I consider to be my pastor, Pastor Craig Rochelle, is here with us to share God's word. And his wife, Amy, is also here with him, supporting him. And... I don't feel like I really need to introduce Pastor Craig to Elevation Church, for he is a part of our family. Um, I would call him a granddad in this church because, you know, like he's the pastor's pastor. But then again, uh, I'm only 12 years old, and so um, that doesn't really work out. I'm not really 12, but some people have thought that from time to time. And uh, Pastor Craig means a lot to me, both professionally, but especially personally. Um, he is the pastor of LifeChurch.tv. And that is the largest attended church in the United States of America. We have over 40,000 people showing up each weekend at one of their 15 locations. I always have to ask him right before I introduce him how many locations because there's a good chance that he will have added one over lunch. They're growing so much. Okay, so here's a fair question. Are we going to learn more about Craig Rochelle or more about Jesus from this sermon? That's just that, that's a fair question that I'm just asking right up front. Much for the Lord, and they taught us a lot about how to do multi-sided. He is one of the leading voices in the church today. You're going to be blessed watching him uh, on television or online. We do want to welcome our television audience, and we want to thank TBN for allowing us to share this message with the world. It's such an honor to enter your home. Pastor Craig is not only a pastor, but he's a church planter. There are 
230 plus churches that are in the network that use their materials. And what blesses me about him and what he's taught me is they give it all away for free. Um, And they not only give away their sermon resources and their church resources for free, but they uh, had a vision to make a Bible app that they could not charge people for, but just give away for free. It's called YouVersion. It's the latest thing that they've done to bless the church. And if you're watching online, you may actually be reading along with us on YouVersion, and some of you may be reading as well. Uh, He told me that they've had over 30 million downloads now that they've made available the Word of God to the body of Christ. He and his team are phenomenal. But as I said, I think... um, I wanted to speak more to the fact that every pastor needs a pastor. And Pastor Craig, for whatever reason, decided to be nice to me, treat me like a little brother. And he checks on me so much, and he helps me. And so I want him to speak to us tonight to kick off our revival. There's no other human being that I would invite to do the first night of something that is so big for us. And I told him to address us on two levels. I told him to speak to our church, speak vision to us, challenge us about what's possible, where God is taking us. And then to minister to us as individuals in our lives and challenge us. And those of you watching online, on television, I don't know exactly how this will apply. So he's going to speak vision to us. Not sure how that's done. to you, But God has a great word for you. And everything that's going to be said to our church will apply to you as well. So I want you to tell somebody to log on right now to the Elevation Network. Tell them that God is about to speak a word. I want you to be ready, church. I want you to be responsive. I want you to have friendly, smiling faces, even in the overflow. And let's welcome to the stage, we're going to do it elevation style, my pastor, Pastor Craig Groeschel, as he comes to share God's word. Come on, give him some love. that on TV when you do this everybody goes down I've I don't have that power yet but you never know what might happen at code orange revival I don't think I've ever been to a place that's more excited about the risen Christ than this place I'm telling you it's a huge honor to uh to be with you guys, this is, this is like my church um, away from home. My whole staff listens to your pastor. Our, uh, there are literally thousands and thousands of people from our church that listen every week. We, we feel like, um, and we are one church um, in different places, and we, we really feel that and believe that. And, and uh, I just, I know that you all know this. There's so many of you. I got texts from pastors all over the country that are actually joining in with their churches um, and we just, we welcome you all and our television audience and businesses. And uh, it's, I mean, it's amazing to have people all over the world with us right now. A lot of you don't know the Elevation story. Um, and I just want you all to understand from an outside perspective that what's going on here is supernatural. Hands down, blow away, glory to God. The, um, this, this amazing church is not quite six years old. And just a couple of weeks ago um, on Christmas, 
This is hard to believe, but a six-year-old church saw over 20,000 people walk through the door. But get this, over 2,200 people stood up to surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And... Where in the Bible does it say um, that people are saved by surrendering their lives? I thought we were saved by Jesus Christ surrendering his life. Seems a little backwards to me. But, by the way, are we hearing anything about Jesus? Not yet. Um, I thought this was open up the word time. Yeah, Bible hasn't really been opened yet. That's like Pentecost. I'm serious. I mean, that's like, this is like New Testament, miraculous power. I, 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 I love the church with all my heart. I love the church, but this is almost more of a movement than a church of what God's doing all over the world. And I, I hope that you feel that and, and worship God for it. And, and um, I just, I have to say, when, um, when Pastor Stephen calls me as pastor, I feel more responsibility uh, for that than you can imagine because um, I want with everything that I have to have his ministry and influence far exceed mine, and I consider it one of my life goals. Well, if you're, you're his pastor, would you rebuke him and uh, correct him for his narsa Jesus? Probably not. Why do I get the feeling that, uh, that uh, well, like pastor, like parishioner? Yeah, you'll see what I'm saying. Have we heard anything about Jesus yet? Have we learned more about Jesus or more about Stephen Furtick so far? Yeah. ...to help remove obstacles. And I've said before to protect him, and it's not from like other people. He can handle himself. Uh, but even to protect him from himself, because uh, that's what might be most dangerous to him. And uh, uh, he, uh, he, his faith has been a gift to me. Um, his friendship came along in a time where it just... Uh, it renewed my passion um, even more so. And what I love about you all is um, the more success God gives you, the more humble you become. And you really realize this is God's, and it's supernatural. To, um, and you, everybody knows you got, like, freaky Holy Spirit gifts. There's no doubt. But your your integrity your humility, your deepening passion in the Lord. Um, you're just, you're growing up. You're barely even getting started. And oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see what God does. So I want to honor your pastors and love you all, your family. I'm so blessed to... Uh... Yeah. Let's, uh, as... As you all remain standing, let's just uh, let's pray. Father, we worship you, we love you, we honor you for your work, not only in this church, but in the global church all over the world. God, I pray for all those who are uh, listening and watching online and on television that your Holy Spirit would speak to them, build their faith, build their churches, build your church. God, I pray uh, that this revival would be more than 12 nights, but would span over a lifetime as you use this church to bring people into your kingdom and to bring glory to your name, the name of Jesus, which is above all other names. God, we worship you. We honor you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. Speak to your church today a message that would build their faith and build your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.
Power, baby, power, power. Okay, uh, before we dive into God's word, Acts, we're going to spend some time in the book of Acts. We'll start in Acts chapter 4. I need to educate you on something you may not know. This is very, very important. You will want to take notes. Anytime, anywhere, anyone says, bless your heart, what you need to know is what they're saying is, you are an idiot. You need to know that because you can't go on in the Lord until you understand the basics. And you just watch. Anytime someone walks into a glass door, what do you say? Bless his heart. Okay. If I fell off this stage, what would you say? Well, bless his heart. If some girl is wearing an outfit that doesn't match, what do you say? Bless her heart. What it means is, help me out, it means you're an idiot. In fact... The very first time I did a, a funeral, I was probably 23 years of age, and I was very, very nervous. My pastor uh, said, Craig, this is an easy one. You can't mess up. She was about 110. She loved Jesus. She's in heaven. Sing a couple songs, read some scripture, pray. This is a no-brainer. I met with the family. I said, uh, what do you all want? They said, read Psalm 23 and sing Amazing Grace. Don't forget to sing she loved Amazing Grace. So it was an outside, very small, graveside funeral. And I said, everybody, um, Psalm 23, and I read it. And then I got through, and I thought, okay, it's Amazing Grace time. So I just assumed if I started singing, everybody would start singing. Um, Who is he preaching about? Is he preaching about Jesus? Nope. Craig Rochelle right now is preaching about himself. So I asked the question, will we learn more about Jesus or more about Craig Rochelle? So far, we've learned nothing, absolutely zip about Jesus. But we're learning about Craig Rochelle's experiences, uh, early um, groaner kind of experiences when he was a young pastoral pup, if you would. But nothing about Jesus. Does Craig Rochelle's life um, is that the gospel? No, no, it's not. Is does the Craig Groeschel's anecdotal life stories have the power to bring people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Nope, not at all. He's not the Messiah, but as a Christian pastor, he's called to proclaim the Messiah. Is he doing that right now? Nope, not at all. Whenever Pastor Stephen tonight said, gee, and then started singing, my wife leaned over to me and she said, you can't do that because I can't sing at all. And I just assumed I'd start singing and they'd join in. And so outside funeral, I said, I started amazing. And everybody's going, this guy's bad. And they're looking at me and I'm, just, I'm still going and they're all looking at me and I'm panicking, I'm freaking out. And so I just decided I'm closing my eyes and I'm doing this one for the glory of God. I'm a fool for Christ. And I just, as best I could, I closed my eyes and God is my witness in the middle of my solo, a fly. I'm on the, uh, a fly flies right into my mouth. God is my witness. His, you know, a uh, uh, dingly thing back there hits the dingly thing and drops down into the back of my throat. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting next to Grandma's grave with a dilemma. 
What do I do? Do I A, hack a loogie and spit the fly, or do I B, swallow? How many think I swallowed? In Jesus' name I swallowed. Took that baby right on down. Swallowed. So, so that's the first mention of Jesus. In Jesus' name he swallowed the fly. I don't know why he swallowed the fly. Perhaps he'll die. Um, boy, um, we're not really learning anything about Jesus, but Jesus was mentioned right there. First mention of Jesus. In Jesus' name he swallowed a fly. A fly, and I thought it couldn't get any worse than this. I got down to the end. I put my hand on the casket, and I said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's what pastors are supposed to say. Now, as soon as I started saying that, I realized, oh, no, I can't remember what you're supposed to say after that. <laughs> who, know, who knows what you say after that? Who knows what you say? See, I forgot. To, I didn't know either. And so I've got my hand right there on Grandma's casket. I said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. <laughs> then I thought, everybody here is like really sad. It's been a hard time. I'm going to say something funny and just lighten this crowd up. I was going to lose my. I said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Sure hope this coffin doesn't rust. <laughs> See, I thought it was funny. They're laughing too, right? Nobody. Great comedic delivery. That funny story. Um, okay. Um, all right. Um, I'm not hearing anything about Jesus yet. Um, and that, this is supposed to be a revival. Remember, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. Don't you think you might want to tell the story of Jesus? Tell us about our Savior? Nobody laughed. I'm walking back to the, the car, and the, the funeral home guy looks at me, and he says, uh, First funeral? I said, yeah, he put his arm around me, and guess what he said? Bless your heart. You ain't nothing but an idiot. Somebody touch somebody next to you and say, bless your heart. Grab somebody else. Come on, all of our, all of our campuses, touch somebody and say, bless your heart. You ain't nothing but an idiot. All right. Let's dive in because I've got some good news for you. If you were voted most likely to... Okay, weird. He just said he has some good news for us. Usually when pastors talk about good news, that's a reference to Christ and him crucified for our sins. Think we're going to hear that? Well, let's see succeed if you were the most talented if you were the best looking if you were homecoming king or homecoming queen if you were the best athlete or the best looking i have great news for you god can still use you i'm telling you the truth he can use you he can use you it's um god can use you um that's not the gospel just that he specializes in using idiots. He does. He specializes in using idiots with massive faith in himself. 
<laughs> Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, the religious folks said, stop talking about Jesus. We don't want to hear any more about Jesus. They said, okay, now I want to point something out here. This is correct. Acts chapter 4 does say that the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John to stop talking about Jesus. Okay. So here's a question I have. Is Craig Rochelle equally preaching about Jesus the way Peter and John did? Well, let's continue. By what power do you do this? They said salvation is found in no other name but Jesus. And uh, the, on trial, the, all the other looked around and they were blown away because the religious leaders had the authority and the ability to put them to death. And these guys would not back down. They would not bend. They would not compromise on the name of Jesus. And scripture says when they, the religious leaders of the day, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and what type of men, would somebody say it aloud, they were unschooled and ordinary men. They were astonished. They were blown away. And they took note that these men had what? Say it aloud. They had been with Jesus. Now the Greek word that's translated as ordinary is the word idiotes. Can anybody see where this is going? The Bible translators honestly are polite. They're politically correct. What this word literally means, you can look it up yourself, it means an ignoramus, it means an ignorant or unlearned person. It means an idiot. When the religious people looked on, they were blown away. And they took note that these very ordinary, very unschooled, uneducated, unlikely idiots had this dynamic courage and power. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. In fact, think about this. Whenever Jesus recruited those to follow him, to be in his inner circle, to do ministry with him. Who did he call? He called the uneducated. He called the tax collectors. He called the prostitutes. He called the lowest of the low. He called the outcasts. He called those that no one else thought could make a difference. Notice who he did. He called those whom no one else thought could make a difference. Actually, I think the better way of putting it is, is that he called sinners. Now, I, I hate to uh, contradict Pastor Groeschel here, but who who wrote you know more than half of the New Testament? Answer: The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not an unlettered man. He w he learned his letters and was an, an excellent scholar, if you would, biblical scholar, and he learned to be a scholar under Gamaliel. So God, it's not that God only calls idiotes. He does call idiotes. He calls all human beings, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, slave and free. He calls all of them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. So this isn't exactly right just because in that particular instant, in that particular story in Acts chapter 4 where 
Peter and John, who grew up as Galilean fishermen, were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were able to stand their ground against educated people, doesn't mean that God only calls idiotes. He does call idiotes. He calls all men everywhere, regardless of rank, status, or education, to repentance and faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and to be ambassadors to proclaim that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, that's what all of us are called to do. So this isn't exactly right. It's just correct in the case of uh, of Peter and John, which does, in a sense, I mean, it's nice to know that God calls all men everywhere to repentance and faith in him, but it's, the gospel message is not the message that God can use you. The gospel message is the good news that Christ died for you. He didn't call. He didn't call a single religious person, not a Sadducee, not a Pharisee, not a single person from the religious sect. He called a bunch of people that others would overlook. In fact, even to this day, when you look around the American church, whenever you see a church calling for a pastor, uh, they'll almost always say in their ads, we want three things. We want someone who's been in ministry for at least five years, uh, someone who's been to seminary, uh, and someone who is married, someone who's been in ministry five years, someone who's been to seminary, and someone who was married. Think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, would not qualify to be the pastor of most churches in America. Hadn't been to seminary. Only had three years of public ministry, not married. Sorry, Jesus, come back when you have some more experience. You have yeah, that's not exactly true either. Um, Jesus excelled uh, in the Pharisaical schools. I mean, this shows a lack of understanding of how uh, Jewish men in the in in, in well in Jesus's neck of the woods were educated, as far as being you know biblically trained. Um, that's not exactly correct. Have a balanced life and you get married. Here's the deal: people are looking for people with the world's qualifications. I'm here to tell you that God is looking for some idiots, some people who just. Yeah, that's not exactly true either. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you, By the way, if you want to understand the qualifications for a pastor, then you need to read First and Second Timothy as well as the book of Titus. Um, for instance, I mean, here, 2 Timothy chapter 2.15 says, Study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handles or rightly cuts the word of truth. Um, the, uh, the, the, in order for somebody to teach in the Christian church, um, they have to show themselves as somebody who can rightly handle and teach God's word. This is what the biblical qualifications are for a pastor. These are not worldly qualifications. Um, let me give you another passage, Titus chapter one, uh, starting at verse seven, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick tempered tempered or a drunk or violent or greedy for gain, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine 
and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. Think of money here. Uh, What they ought not to teach. So one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So uh, if you, when you read First and Second Timothy and Titus, you see that there are qualifications for people in the ministry uh, that they have to study and show themselves approved as people who can rightly handle God's word, give instruction in sound doctrine, and to rebuke those who contradict it, as well as lives that show that they are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, uh, uh, repenting of their sins. So, hmm, yeah, this is not, this is, yeah, he's not going to a passage that talks about the qualifications of people in ministry. Just looking at the word idiotes in Acts chapter 4, as if that's somehow normative. Now, keep in mind, I want to point something else out. Um, Peter and John, even though they were unlettered fishermen, spent three years learning under Jesus. They were Jesus' disciples for three years. Do you think that three years studying under Jesus would be the best, most amazing seminary training known to humanity? There they've got God in the flesh, God the Son, teaching them directly about what the scriptures say and mean and teach. Yeah. See, I think three years learning at the feet of Jesus is going to beat any seminary on planet Earth. So it's not like they were uneducated. They just weren't lettered and didn't have the pharisaical uh, Sanhedrin official letters behind their degree. But they earned their degree at the feet of Jesus. We continue. Enough to believe that he is real, that he is powerful, that he is here. Not just regular idiots, but he's looking for idiots who have been with Jesus and know what it's like to be forgiven, know what it's like to be healed, know what it's like to be transformed, who are so different because of the Son of God that they don't care what the world thinks and they will live with audacious faith and do what others believe cannot be done. So I want to bring to you a word that hopefully will encourage you today about those of you who are idiots for Christ. Uh, Let me give you three thoughts. The first one, if you're taking notes, uh, I pray that you will understand and live out that idiots for Christ obey irrationally. Mm, There we go. Obey irrationally. Notice the adverb, irrationally. Obey irrationally. Okay. If you want to say that you're obedient to God, crack open the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Read the list and ask yourself the question, are you obeying? By the way, sinning is not just a matter of behavior. You sin when you break the commandments even in your heart. For instance, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, it says in the law, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that you have committed adultery in your heart when you look at a woman with lust in your heart. You've already committed adultery with her. Mm -hmm. 
So when we sin against God, motives even matter. Thoughts matter. We're in, you know, so we sin against God in thought, word, and deed. So obey irrationally. Great. How are you doing at that? By the way, the passage I just read in Romans 3 and 4 says that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by obeying or keeping the law. So are you, how, how, what's the adverb that we can put behind the word, behind your obeying? Are you obeying faultlessly? Are you obeying irrationally? Are you obeying boldly? Or if you're honest with yourself, are you obeying pathetically? Are you obeying miserably? Are you not obeying? You see, that's the problem that Jesus comes to solve, your lack of obedience. Because Jesus was perfectly sinless. He was perfectly obedient for you. And by faith, when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, his perfect obedience and righteousness is given to you as a package deal. Remember, on the cross, your sins were put on him. And when you are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is given to you as if you're the one who lived it. So how do you add to Jesus's perfect obedience? Can you add to it? Hmm. When God speaks, their answer is yes, no matter what, all through Scripture, whether it's... Right, yeah, that's because... Yeah, every single character in the Old Testament was all about whatever God said there, yes, I'm going to do it. Right. Every person in the Old Testament, every single one, they were all sinners. And they did not obey God irrationally or sinlessly. Or whenever God said to do something, they said, right on. Not even close. It's God calling Noah to build an ark when it hasn't rained for like ever. Yeah, and after the flood, he gets drunk and is lying naked in his tent. When God is telling someone, Joshua, march around the wall again and again and again. When God tells Gideon to go into battle with some pitchers and some torches and some trumpets. Yeah, and you didn't talk about the fact how Gideon really um, had to be coaxed and coerced by God to do that. That they were just simple enough to take God at his word and do exactly what he said to do. We see that again in the book of Acts before the Sanhedrin when Peter stands up boldly and says with the other apostles, Acts 5.29, we must do what? Somebody help me. They said we must obey God rather than whom? We must obey God rather than everybody. Yeah, but the context of that is that they had told them to stop preaching Christ and Peter said, no, we must obey God rather than men. This isn't about just mere obedience or some kind of thing like that. It has to do with proclaiming Jesus. Now, here's the question. Is he proclaiming Jesus? Craig Rochelle is not. He hasn't so far. So, um, I, I don't think Peter and John would approve or even like Craig Rochelle's message, because at this point, he's talking about obeying God. Well, the, the, in the context of that verse, the verse is talking about, stop preaching about Jesus. We have to obey God rather than men, Peter says in response. 
But here Craig is preaching about men and mere men, himself, Stephen Furtick, but he's not preaching Christ. In fact, Craig Rochelle right now is doing, actually Craig Rochelle is obeying the Sanhedrin. He's not preaching Christ. So he's, he's being obedient to the Sanhedrin where Peter was defiant. You see what I'm saying here? Have you heard anything about Jesus here? Not really. All of our campuses, those of you around the world, we must obey whom? If you're a follower of Jesus, we must obey God rather than, again, we must obey God rather than men. Here's what I came to tell you. Some of you, God is going to call you, lead you, empower you, speak to you to do some things that don't make sense to everyone else, not even yourself. And you're going to have to have the audacious faith to say yes, even when you don't know what comes next. In fact, I can't tell you how many different times God has done something uh, in my life following the simple yes to what I... Mm, So he's the example of this. So now he's going to tell us more stories about himself. Are we learning more about Craig Rochelle or more about Jesus? felt like he was saying. Uh, not too long ago, I, had a, uh, I was in, a, uh, in an airport flying home after teaching all day, a connecting flight. The flight was late. I was exhausted. I looked up um, at a person sitting across the aisle, and she gave me this great look. Pastor Stephen, you get it all the time. She just kind of looked at me and went like that. And I call that the, oh, you're my pastor look. It's, you know, you're my pastor. And she, she came over, she goes, you're my pastor. And then I said, hey, oh, it's so great to see you here. And, and where are you going? And we were talking. And, and I did the best I could to be um, friendly when I was exhausted. And then I kind of just said, oh, it's awesome to see you. Um, do you mind if I just kind of finish reading here? Because I just, I didn't, I was just exhausted. And as soon as she turned away, I felt like there was something in my spirit that, that was saying, God wanted to do something in this and that I, I shut it down. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it was just, just that, that sense. And so I just said to her, hang on, wait, wait, come back here, come back. I'm sorry. Um, I feel like you wanted to say something else and I cut you off. If you want to talk, I'd love to listen. And the most unusual thing happened at that moment. She just broke down sobbing uh, in the airport. And she said, uh, Pastor Craig, I'm so embarrassed. I'm devastated. I just, I, came, I don't know how I'm going to ever live with myself. I was on a business trip, and I um, shouldn't have been drinking, but I had a drink, and then two, and then three, and I got drunk. And she said, I'm devastated. I betrayed my husband and had an affair. And uh, I, just, I, I just, my heart broke for her in that moment. And then I realized, wait a minute. She's here hours after that happened. I'm here, her pastor. Um, God set this up. It wants to do something. So, so I took out my cell phone and said, we're going to get you help. This is, this is very difficult, but I'm calling a friend who's a counselor, um, Michelle, and I dialed Michelle, and I said, can you get them in for marriage counseling because they're going to need it. And then I said, <clears throat> I said to this guy, I said, um, you're going to need to confess this to your husband and have integrity and not carry the secrets, and it's going to be very difficult for a while, but you're going to need to do what's right. Uh, did you tell her about how her God and Savior, Jesus Christ, was crucified and bled and died in order to propitiate the wrath of God against that sin so that you can tell her that she's forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Did you tell her that? I mean, we're, de- we're dealing with a, a sin here, a pretty good one, one that Jesus bled and died for. Can we hear the good news about the forgiveness of sins won by Christ? This will be a great place to segue into telling us about Jesus. 
when are you going to do it? And I made her commit to a time, and she said, I'll do it Saturday at 10 a.m. when he gets back late from his business trip Friday night. I'll tell him that morning. I said, okay, I'm going to call you um, on Monday, and we're going to follow up, and we're going to get this going. Well, Saturday, weird thing happened. My daughter, Mandy, um, uh, I have six kids, by the way. Okay, count six kids. That's a basketball team with a sub. Okay. <clears throat> We just happen to believe that children are a blessing from God. We do. We just, we just do. Um, some people say, why do you have so many kids? The honest reason is my wife will not leave me alone. It's just, it's, she won't. It gets old sometimes, but you've got to do what you've got to do. I always tell her, I always, I always tell her, not tonight. Let's just cuddle. Let's just hold each other. I thought we were going to hear God's word, and this is all about Jesus. So far it isn't. This isn't about Jesus at all. You know how women are. One thing, that's all they think about. One thing. So anyway, uh, I, I'm, Mandy, my daughter, had dance practice uh, across town, uh, a dance rehearsal, which was odd. And so I dropped her off um, at 10 o'clock. And I realized it's 10 o'clock. And I thought, I, I need to pray for this couple. And so I'm praying, and I'm praying heaven down uh, for them. And then 10.30 rolls around. I go, I still got an hour to kill. What am I going to do? And I don't know about you, but I, I've learned to kind of try to talk to God just in short bursts of prayer. Just, like, you know, not, not long prayers. Just like, what do you want to do, God? And just kind of like that. And again, I had this weird feeling, and I knew it had to be God because either God or Satan. Because I don't like- it could be low blood sugar. It could be any number of things. Are you sure it was God? Like God was saying, go to Walmart. And I don't have anything against Walmart except for I hate going to Walmart with all my heart. I just hate going to Walmart. I, I, nothing against Walmart. I just don't like going to I'd rather go to a pet store and look at cats <laughs> than go to Walmart. <laughs> but I, I had this feeling. So I went into Walmart, and I'm like, Walking around at Walmart. It was, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I looked up, and there was this guy who went, you're my pastor. And he came running up. God is my witness, threw his full weight on me, and just broke down. And he said, you were in the airport uh, with my wife in St. Louis. And he said, she just told me 30 minutes ago what happened. I didn't know what to do, so I came to Walmart. And a great story, um, but it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. You, can you tell me something about Jesus and, you know, read, you know, actually teach God's word here? I'm not sure when that's supposed to take place, but I mean, this is a revival. I mean, and you've talked about some pretty, you know, gory sins here. Um, does the cross have anything to do with those sins? Again, man, the Spirit of God just kind of, I could just sense His presence, and I just held Him, and, and right in the middle of Walmart, I mean, I was like, you know, whatever, and we're <laughs> hugging and crying, and, and I didn't care at all, and I said, oh, my heart breaks for you, I know this is betrayal, I know you're in deep pain, but here's what I want you to understand, God had me in St. Louis on a connecting flight, and God sent me to Walmart to be with you today. And I want you to understand... You are aware that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bleed and die for those sins, right? Stand that what your enemy meant for evil, I believe God is going to use for good, and God is going to do something supernatural in your marriage. And I happened to get an email just yesterday... Um, 
And this family, their marriage is better than it ever has been. Their intimacy is deeper. They've been blessed with two little girls, and God is transforming them. Yeah, that's great that they have better intimacy. Um, how about forgiveness of sins? I mean, can we talk about the cross at all? Um, yeah. I, uh. And I, I, now, every time that I feel like God tells me to do something, you know, it's not like, whoa, you know, I don't lead the whole aisle of people in the frozen goods to Christ every time I go to Walmart. <laughs> but here's the deal. If you will listen to God and have the faith to obey, you're going to watch. Mm, if you will listen to God and have the faith to obey. Yet Romans 3 and 4, which I read earlier, said that we are saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our obedience. Uh-oh. If you are just a big enough idiot every now and then when you feel like God wants you to reach out to someone, to call someone, to give something to someone, to encourage someone, to email them a scripture, to invite them to Elevation Church, to reach out, and you have that faith, God is going to do things beyond what you can ask, think, or imagine. Be an idiot and obey Him. Here's the deal. Your, your pastor did a 40-day liquid-only fast before he started the church because he... Mm, yeah, and Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days after he was baptized by John the Baptist. I wonder which is more important. Huh. He felt like God told him, bless your heart, Pastor Stephen. <laughs> 40-day liquid fast, and I'm here to tell you God honored that, and a bunch of what you see today is because he obeyed what God told him to do. I mean, the stories of this church, it's, it's unbelievable. In fact, yeah, you know, the stories that, about Jesus are better than those stories, too, you know? In fact, uh, you all, talk about idiots, did a capital campaign for a building before you had any idea where the building would be. And you guys gave like crazy to a vision that wasn't even crystallized, and now is the Matthews campus. And then to top it all off, at the very first offering in this building campaign, God put it on your pastor's heart to give away to another ministry every dime given to the very first part. And this church has never lacked, as your pastor has been generous and obedient, and you watch as God just blesses that kind of... Yeah, um, believing in Stephen Furtick won't save anybody. Stephen Furtick isn't the Messiah. Stephen Furtick didn't die on the cross and raise again on the third day for the sins of the world. In fact, Stephen Furtick is a sinner just like you and me, and he's in need of a savior. Weird that now we've switched from talking about Craig Rochelle to preaching about Stephen Furtick, but Jesus, I'm I'm wondering, do you think Jesus will make a cameo appearance at the end? Maybe they'll... You know, let Jesus come on stage for just a second so he can wave at everybody and say, Hi, hi, I'm here. I, I'm glad they let me show up. But, uh, you know, I wasn't asked to speak tonight. And, you know, I've got more important things to preach about than me. You know, little old me, poor Jesus. It's crazy. Pastor Stephen. Yes, it's crazy. It's crazy that you're preaching about yourself and Stephen Furtick and not Jesus at a revival. Weird. <laughs> I mean, this shouldn't happen at a church, period, yet alone a revival, an old-school revival. Even calls me, Craig, I'm thinking about starting two campuses in one day. What do you think? Bless your heart. 
bless your heart. Pastor Craig, Pastor Craig, I'm thinking about doing a 12-night revival. What do you think? Bless your heart. <laughs> bless your heart. And we have no idea. I can, here, all I can tell you is... I'm thinking about preaching about myself. Bless your heart. Is that the end of 12 nights, and some of you, you're going to be hardcore, and you're not going to miss a single night. And I'm telling you, at the end of this time... I don't know what we're going to see, but I can promise you we're going to see the face of God and we're going to see miracles and we're going to see this city different because someone was crazy enough to take God at his word and to believe because we must obey God. Yeah, we must obey God is not the gospel. That's the thing that actually condemns you because you don't obey God. Yeah, this is not the gospel at all. This is flat out just pure law. Huh. N well, no wonder he's not preaching about Jesus. Rather than them, some of you, God is going to speak to you. He's going to speak to you and ask you to do something crazy. And you're going to have to take a step of faith. And when you do, you're going to see the faithfulness of God like you never have before. Oh, man, put me on TBN and suddenly I'm knocking people down. How did this happen? Somebody stop me quickly. <laughs> okay. Idiots for Christ, they obey irrationally. Somebody say obey irrationally. Yes. Number two, idiots for Christ, they give extravagantly, don't they? They give extravagantly, whether it's Solomon who's supposed to offer one bull unto the Lord. Uh-oh, we're steering into money now. Um, hmm. Yeah, well, that makes sense. They're broadcasting on TBN now, so they need a lot of money. Lord, as it is tradition, but instead offers 1,000 animals to God. If it's the poor widow who walks in and takes the little that she has, but it's all that she has and worships her God. If it's the woman uh, with a, a bottle of oil that's valued at one year's wages and she's very, very poor, but in an extravagant moment of adoration for Christ, she breaks the whole thing open, pours it on him. And, and, and religious Judas, who ended up having a problem with money, looks at her and says, bless your heart, that's stupid. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Because he didn't understand what an idiot for Christ will actually do. In the New Testament, man, these, these, these first century believers, they were such idiots, and I want you to hear this. They were such idiots that they didn't believe that more material possessions would make them happy. But they actually believed that anything and everything that they had belonged to God. And when they were faithful with whatever God gave them, some of them would even sell what they had to give, uh, to, to give and bring it and put it at the apostles' feet. And here's what Scripture says, and here's what I believe can happen in your church, in your city. Those of you all over the world, I'm telling you, small groups, if your small group takes this, if your church takes this, if your business takes this, I believe that you can see every need met in the community, not by the government, but if the church does her job, you're going to watch the church meet every need in the community. And then the non-believers are going to look on and go, what's up with that? What's up with that? I don't understand what they believe, but I want to be in on what they're doing. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. Scripture says there were no needy persons among them. Can you imagine that? Not a single need 
in the people of God. Because the Bible says from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put them at the, uh, the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Let me ask you a question. If Pastor Stephen said, uh, there's uh, someone in our church that has a need, how many of you would give $100, no question asked? How many of you would do that? If, there, if I said to you there's a, um, a single mom who can't repair her, her home or an older uh, widow who can't repair their home, how many of you are good uh, with your hands and have some tools and would be there to help out? If there was someone... Uh now, it's absolutely a good work to love and serve your neighbor and help them with their bodily needs. Absolutely true. Problem is that none of us does it very well, and as a result of it, uh, this condemns us. Because uh, each and every one of you, as you're listening to this, can think of all kinds of different opportunities where you had to help your neighbor and you just turned a blind eye. Yeah. Um, can we hear about Jesus, please? Who, uh, who could barely make it because she's working two jobs uh, with no husband around, taking care of four kids. How many of you would give her a night off and go take care of her kids so she could do, spend some time with God or do something else? Here's what I want to How many of you are so crazy that if God spoke to you and maybe you're upgrading to a newer car, you'd be willing to bring your car to the church and say uh, to your campus pastor, who needs this car? How many of you would be crazy enough that you might even want to do that one day? Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. Every need represented in this church in your community could be met if we just took what we had and said, God, when you need it, my answer is yes. Every single need. I'm telling you, there are doctors who would treat people for free, dentists who would work on somebody's teeth, mechanics who would work on someone's car, and every need could be met. The problem is, in our society, we spend so much time planning how we can get more. You're just big enough idiots that some of you are going to plan how you can give more. Not just get more, but give more. You're not going to just scheme to get the new iPhone or the new iPad or, or, or whatever, but you're going to scheme and say, how can I give more for the glory of God? In fact, uh, my wife, Amy, who is my best friend and incredible in every way. Uh, the only Another story about him. Hey, when is he going to preach Jesus? We've heard a lot about Craig, a lot about Stephen Furtick, but like nothing about Jesus. Weird. I mean... How is revival supposed to break out if Jesus isn't even allowed to be there? Isn't even barely mentioned? Hmm? The only downside is in 20 years of marriage, one time she read this satanic book that talked about not eating meat. It's a book. It's like a health book. Don't eat meat. Okay? So we got on this no meat thing. I had to go out of town to get a steak. Okay? Some guys go out of town to drink beer and chase women. I went there to get some dead cow. Okay. If you're a vegetarian, that's cool. No, no judgment. But whenever the prodigal son came home, what did the dad kill? He killed the fatted calf. Just saying. Okay. So I was in a third world country and um, went to this place that I couldn't even call a house. If you've ever, if you've never been to a place like this, you owe it to yourself to see how um, a big percentage of the world lives. There was no dirt. There was no floor. It was dirt. There, you know, eight people lived in this thing that was you know, this big, there's no running water, no toilets, is the worst. And this lady um, sat me down and she, through the translator, said, uh, Pastor, you're a man of God and I understand you don't get much meat. And I wanted to bless you with meat. And so she put some, and I'm looking down, and I didn't see any cows in this community. I saw a bunch of scraggly looking dogs. I'm, I'm kind of nervous. And, and so I kind of cautiously ate it. And when I got through, my translator said to me, he said, did you, did you notice that on her plate there was no meat? 
And I said, oh, you're, you're right. Does she not like meat? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. She said, when she heard you were coming nine months ago, she started saving her money. To bless you, the man of God, with meat. I don't know about you, but I live a life that would be considered... I haven't had a need ever. And this woman planned to be a blessing. I believe God's going to speak to some of you, and you're going to scheme to how you can give more. Notice how the expectation is God's going to speak to them somewhere in their heart, but apparently God doesn't speak through the preaching of his word, because we're not hearing his word preached. What are we up to? What, three and a half, maybe four-ish verses total? Have we heard anything about Jesus from this man of God? And this, I'm telling you, this is one of the most crazy, irrational, generous churches around. And that's one of the reasons why God is blessing it. But I, I believe God, there's some of you, there's some of you that you're not tithing yet. And, and God is going to speak to you at this moment. And you're going to do what's right. And you're going to return. And now, now the tithe which is an Old Testament command. Yeah, uh, look in the archives of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you know, especially regarding Robert Morris. Just type in Robert Morris, and uh, you'll hear episodes where we pick this apart and show you biblically uh, new t Christians are not under this law. Turn 10% unto the Lord through his church, and you will, you will see the faithfulness of God. And the world's going to look on and go, that's just stupid. That's Anybody who do that, I'm here to tell you, God can do more with 90% than you can do with 100%. And some of you are going to say, but I'd have to rearrange my life to do that, to put God first. And I'm here to tell you, yes, you will. Uh, when Pastor Stephen, his, their, their family's giving is so... Why do you think it is that uh, what Craig Rochelle here is preaching is so radically different? It's like 180 degrees different than what I read from Romans chapter 3 and 4. Hmm? Interesting. I read from the scriptures. I taught from the scriptures. Craig Rochelle, he's not. Hmm. Unbelievable. It scares me. In fact, they get, he called me and said, this next year, here's what I believe I want, want to give. And I, I just, in the flesh, I said, but wait a minute, you've got kids, you need to think about the future. And they're like, no, I just backed off because that is the heart that God has blessed. That's why a six-year-old church could give away $2 million last year. A six-year-old church could give away $2 million. That's why there's no ticket price on a revival where you bring in the greatest speakers from around the world because... An idiot for Christ will give extravagantly. Number one, everybody say it. Idiots for Christ obey irrationally. They give extravagantly. And number three, idiots for Christ do what others believe cannot be done. All law, and this is not Christianity. Idiots for Christ, they obey irrationally. They give extravagantly, and they do what others believe cannot be done. When I first started getting to know your pastor well, your church was one years old, a little baby startup church. He said, Pastor Craig, God's given me a vision. By the year 2010, we will see 10,000 people gather. There's not a person on planet Earth that would have believed that was possible. Not a single person except for the woman who's married to him. And before that happened at Time Warner, you saw even more than that. This is a pastor with massive faith that believes with God all things are possible. And you see this kind of... Mm. Weird. Um, again, we're here. Is, is Stephen Furtick the Messiah? 
Um, why are we hearing about him? I thought Stephen said it was all about Jesus. This is just flabbergasting. I mean, weird that Christian pastors would spend so little time preaching about Jesus and so much about preaching about themselves. And this is exactly what Matt Chandler warned against, isn't it? Reading yourself into the Bible. Faith in the New Testament. When the disciples were being threatened in Acts 4.29, they said, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word of God with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And what did the disciples, they were just big enough idiots to believe that through the power of Christ they could heal the sick. And that through the power of Christ, they could raise the dead. And th- so he wants the power of Jesus, but doesn't really want to preach Jesus. How is that possible? How do you talk about the power of Jesus, but don't preach Christ? Weird. Through the power of Christ, they could cast out demons. And through the power of Christ, they could transform lives. The first time. Yeah, and they preached about him incessantly. I ever saw this happen. I was 23 years of age, again, a very young uh, pastor. A woman came up after church and said, Pastor, the doctor said I'm going to lose my eyesight within six months. Another anecdotal story from his life. Months, it's going to be gone. I can barely see anyway. I just read that day that if there are any sick among you, let them come before the elders of the church, anoint them with oil. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. I'd never done that before. I was in a traditional church. I said, hang on right here. I ran into my pastor's office. There were two bottles of oil up on his shelf. I grabbed one that was prettier looking. I thought, we need pretty power for this. I opened it up. It had this beautiful cinnamon smell. I thought, it smells good. It looks good. I went out. I didn't know how to do this. I put some on my finger. I I thought, I'll just make a cross that sounded spiritual to me. I put it on her forehead. First mention of the cross now. (laughs) And he's not preaching the cross. Weird. And when I did, uh, she started to scream. She said, oh, it burns. It burned. Well, what I didn't realize is it wasn't like anointing oil from Israel or something cool like that. It was actually oil that you put into the, a lamp to make the room smell cinnamon. <laughs> Bless your heart. And so I'm putting this on, and she's like, she's like screaming, oh, it hurts. And I'm I, I, I like, I go, whoo, power. And the more she screamed, the louder I prayed. God, heal her in Jesus. The next week, she walked back in the church. She had this little red mark. Right. She said, you're not going to believe this. I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, my eyes have turned. They're getting better. And I'm, God is my witness. Her eyes were completely healed. She t- She told me that, and I said, no way. I've, I've learned to say things like praise the Lord and stuff like that now. Here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Some of you. Boy, he has these people in the palm of his hand, and weird. He's not preaching Jesus. Uh, notice that the first mention of Jesus and the first mention of the cross were just 
part of the punchline and jokes. I mean, some of you, some of you, you've come in with something that nobody else believes is possible, but you have a need. And I'm here to ask you this, is anything impossible with our God? Is anything impossible with our God? Some of you right now are going, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm not, no, listen, remember, God specializes in using idiots anywhere, wherever you are. In fact, when I went before the ordaining board of a denominational church, I got declined for ordination my first time through. Your ideas are too crazy. You're too fanatic. You're too weird. You got too much. And I got declined. I was not ordained. I was, they did not ordain me. I went out in the car crying my eyes out, crying out to God. And I felt like, I felt like I heard God, not audibly, but it just, there was something I needed. And I believe it was from God. And, and, and what I heard was, you are not who others say you are. You are who I say you are. And I say you are called. And I so he gets direct revelation from God. I've come. To that makes him a prophet. To elevation. And there are Where, why doesn't he preach about Christ if he's a prophet? Some of you online that you need to hear this. You are not who others say you are. You are who God says you are. And right, and God says that they are dead in trespasses and sins, and they need to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And God says you are his. God says you are redeemed. God says you have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Is anything too difficult for our God? Is anything impossible for our God? All things are This sounds like um, the preaching of a super apostle. Look it up. Get online. If you don't have a computerized Bible, go to BibleGateway.org and type in the search box, super Apostle, and then read the passage that comes up and see if that is a positive thing. Possible with God. Is it too difficult for God to heal your marriage that is struggling? No. Mm, but does God promise to heal your marriage that's struggling? He might and he might not. When you read the scriptures, it's clear that Jesus makes it clear that uh, if you confess him as Lord and Savior and you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, that the your greatest enemies might be those in your own household. Their your your spouse might leave you. Oh, is it too difficult to heal the cancer that others say could never be healed? No. Is it is it possible that God could help you overcome your addiction? The answer is yes. Is it possible for God to help you forgive? Yeah, but see the thing is, is that a lot of people have their marriages healed overcome addictions they can do it all without jesus i mean tiger woods i mean he's still a buddhist and uh apparently he's overcome his sex addiction he did it all without jesus so i mean life transformation is not really the uh the the, the thing that tells us whether or not christianity is true or not because when we read another Jesus story, since he's not preaching about Jesus, I might as well. I mean, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, yeah, the Gospel of Mark, let's take a look at, um, yeah, chapter, let's just see. Chapter 2, starting at verse 1. These are the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter. You'll notice that 
Peter was obsessed with preaching about Jesus. Apparently, Craig Rochelle isn't. When he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they, uh, when they got near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed with the paralytic uh, on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, ready, watch this, son your sins are forgiven. Hmm. Now, I'm not paralyzed. And chances are, if you're listening to this program, you're probably not paralyzed too, although there are a few paralytics who listen to Fighting for the Faith. That being the case, though, um, since you're not a paralytic and I'm not a paralytic, do you need to be healed from paralysis? Nope. But you and I share something in common with the paralytic. I'm a sinner, and so are you. And Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's something I need. See, I don't need to be healed of paralysis. Man, I need my sins forgiven, and Jesus is forgiving people here. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except for God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to take up your mat, rise, take up your mat and go home? But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. And people glorified God, saying, we'd never seen anything like this. He can forgive sins. For free, for real. I need that, and so do you. My marriage is doing great. My marriage doesn't need healing. My business, we're, we're, we're doing okay, we're making it. Don't need that. Man, I need my sins forgiven. So do you. See, that's the gospel message. The forgiveness of sins won by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave on the third day for your justification. We're not hearing that from Craig, at least not yet. Someone that you think is unforgivable, the answer is yes. Is it possible for God to bring your prodigal child home? The answer is yes. Is it possible for our God to meet every one of your needs? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, yeah, yeah all, all things are possible with God. But see, here's the deal. Um, not everything is God going to say yes to. I mean, remember, he's sovereign. As you are faithful in giving, the answer is yes. Is it possible for you to be forgiven for what you've done and meet there, the... There, 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 there's the forgiveness. Finally, okay, yeah? In Christ, the answer is yes. But here Is it possible for you to be forgiven? Here's what it's going to take. It's going to take someone who's a big enough idiot to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was dead, but the stone is rolled away. I've okay, that's the first mention of anything that even remotely sounds like the gospel. I believe the tomb is empty and he is risen. Cue sappy, manipulative background music. And when you call on him, you will not be the same. 
So in that litany, you know, just kind of shoved in there at the end was something about the forgiveness of sins. And it's only possible. It wasn't really preached. Yeah, by the way, there's a big difference between mentioning the forgiveness of sins in a long string of litany of things that God's pos- it's possible for God to do and a whole other thing to actually preach the forgiveness of sins. We haven't heard him preach it. There are, there are those of you here, just go ahead and remain standing. There are those of you here that um, God has brought you here because you're not an idiot yet. All right, so here comes the sale. We're going to close the deal now. We're, we're looking for idiots. You're not. Hey, I'm telling you, there are people who've grown up around a church that they're just, they're just too churchy. Now, by the way, I just want to remind you of the question. Are we going to learn more about Craig Rochelle or Jesus Christ? Who have we learned more about tonight? Answer, Craig Rochelle and Stephen Furtick. Very, very little about Jesus from them. You just kind of believe in God and that's it. You just always believed in God. I'm telling you, even the demons believed in God, Scripture says, and they were smart enough to shudder. Yeah, that's true. There are some of you, you need to go from a right here belief in Christ to a right here belief in Christ. Now he's pointing to his head, to his heart. Not just believe in him, but live as if he doesn't exist. But to call on him to be everything. To be everything. To not just an add-on to your life, but everything. And then you become a little different. You become one of those people that do this and one of those people that love like crazy and one of those people that give like crazy and one of those... All law again. People that just say, I just believe God wanted me to reach out to you and all of a sudden you start seeing things happen when you become a big enough idiot for it. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. I want you to listen carefully because there's some of you right now. You may believe in him, but you don't know him. And guess what? As you call on him, Jesus, let me tell you who he is. He is the son of God. Yeah. And he came because we are sinners. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're going to hear. Okay, so we're all sinners. Finally mentioned here at the very tail end of this revival sermon. Okay, so we're sinners. What's that mean? Every single one of us. You don't believe me? You watch your two-year-old just try to take something from a mind. Selfish. You don't have to teach selfishness. We are horrible, filthy sinners in the eyes of God. Right, this is true. Why didn't you spend some time unpacking these thoughts in the middle of your um, storytelling about yourself and Stephen? God sent his son, Jesus, who was without sin. Yes. He gave his life on the cross. He is risen. Here's the deal. Scripture says anyone who calls on his name will be saved. All right, now, that's a bona fide gospel nugget or sprinkle hang on if you blinked you might have missed it i mean if you'd sneezed you know and had to go and blow your nose you may not have actually heard this i mean there was so little preaching about jesus and the cross but i'm glad that it was there i mean yeah at the tail end of it and uh, if you're not a christian already do you even know what he's really talking about Some of you, you're ashamed of your past. When you call on him, 
Every sin you've ever committed will be forgiven by God. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And I'm going to ask you right now in front of God and everybody, if you need his forgiveness, if you need his grace, if you need his salvation, be an idiot. I don't care what anybody thinks. I want you to declare before the whole world, I need his love. I need his grace. Save me. Forgive me. I don't want to be just a go to church every now and then. I want to give my life to him. All of- mm, I want to give my life to him. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus gave his life for you. Backwards. All of our campuses, all of our places, that's you. I need Jesus. Lift your hands high right now. Lift them up high right now. I need salvation. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I need his grace. How many of you? How many? I mean, serious. I mean, why didn't he spend his time preaching about Jesus? Why are we getting Jesus tacked on to the end of all this storytelling about himself? Is that just because it's obligatory? Oh, yeah, this is a revival. I better say something about sins and the cross and forgiveness. How many of you have something? How many of you have something that God put on your heart but you have not yet done? You've got some delayed obedience? Lift up your hands right now. Now we're switching to the law. Lift up your hands right now. And it's not even something written in in the Bible. It's something written on your heart, apparently. God's put something on your heart but you haven't done. Guess what? You're doing it today. How many of you are crazy enough to where you'd like to scheme to be able to give more for the glory of God? So much more that the world looks on and says, what do they have? I want to have that. How many of you have a need for something? Apparently we're totally done with the gospel part of this. Something that may look impossible and you're just crazy enough to believe that with God all things are possible. We're going to pray. We're going to pray that God's going to do miracles. First, would all of you pray aloud with those today that say, I truly need Jesus. Just all our churches around the world, all of our, our locations, just pray aloud. Pray, Heavenly Father, save me from my sins. Make me new. I believe Jesus died for me so I could live for you. Fill me with your spirit so I could serve you with my whole life. Thank you for new life. I give you mine. In Jesus' name, God, I pray for this group. I pray that your spirit would convict those who have heard from you but have not yet obeyed. I pray they're such an idiot, God, that they would obey what you call them to do. God, I pray that Obey, obey, obey. And it's, it's not even obey what's written in God's law. It's whatever God puts on your heart. That you would bless and prosper this church as they sacrificially give to this awesome movement, first returning the tithe, which belongs to you, and then, God, giving them rationally above that. God, I pray Law. that we all be blessed in the gift of offerings. God, I pray that you would speak to those with significant means to give supernatural and sacrificial gifts to further the work of your kingdom. And now, God, for those who are facing something that appears impossible, hey, we face the facts, but we never give up our faith. We believe, O oh God, that all things are possible. We pray in the name that is above every name, 
the name of your risen son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that your power would sweep through every heart. God, that there would be supernatural healings. God, that there would be relationships restored. God, that there would be those brought into your kingdom. That God, this city would be different because your presence is here. We believe for miracles. We believe for your presence. And God, when you act, we'll give you the glory. We'll give you the honor. We'll lift up our hands because we don't care what anybody else thinks. We're idiots for Christ. And the world will look on and they will be astonished at this church and every church in the country because they will see ordinary people. Yeah, I'm astonished because I'm not hearing a church uh, preach Jesus. I'm hearing the pastors at that church preach themselves. Weird. People doing extraordinary things for the glory of God because they have been with Jesus. May it be so. When were they with Jesus? You barely mentioned him. We pray in the name of your risen son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, bless your heart. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I think we're done. We're done with that, at least. There's one more thing I want to play. Because you need to hear the difference. Now, this is going to be the third time I've played this chapel sermon in less than a year. But you need to hear this chapel sermon in juxtaposition to what you heard Craig Rochelle do. Craig Rochelle preached himself. He preached about Stephen Furtick. He barely, at the end, eked out just a little bit of information about Jesus and something about dying on the cross and something about forgiveness, but barely eked out anything that had to do with Jesus. And yet they're expecting a revival there in Charlotte. Really? Because the apostles preached nothing but Jesus. You want to hear what that sounds like? Here's Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and his chapel sermon entitled Christianity in Five Verses. Listen to the stark contrast. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. I begin with a true story, a story of something of which I was a part as a pastor here in Orange County. I was serving as an interim pastor at a non-LCMS Lutheran parish out on El Toro Road years ago. An interim pastor is a temp, called to hold things together as best he can while the congregation goes through what has become the overly long process of issuing a call to a pastor. It's a holding things together with bailing wire and bubble gum. One Sunday, we were talking in the adult class about the call to every Christian to witness to others about the gospel, to tell the story. Before people left that Sunday morning, I gave them an assignment for the following Sunday. The setup I gave them was this. Imagine a situation where a close friend or friends asked you what Christianity was, what it was about. I specified for them conditions that were as good as it gets. A close friendship with him or them over many, many years. Kids who played together each week. A situation where it was normal to phone one another every week about this, that, and the other thing. Maybe you vacationed together as families every summer. 
Your friends saw you as honest, intelligent, of goodwill, and so forth. He or they respected you in every way and without reservation. He or they, as Luther said, always put the best construction on everything that you do. So, the assignment was to take a piece of paper and write down the answer to their question, what is Christianity? Then bring that paper back with you next Sunday. Got it? The following Sunday, I was looking at 50 bright Lutheran Christians who had attempted to set the basics down on paper and realized they couldn't do it. 50 or so blank pages. Now, what I want to do with you in just a few short minutes is something so basic, so fundamental, that it's almost embarrassing to say the words. And even those words are not mine, really. I stole them. From whom? From C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. His subject was that God delights in us whom he put into Christ. It was he, as an Englishman, remember, you don't embarrass anybody, who said that he blushed to even say the words, but he was going to defend that proposition anyway. God delights in his children adopted in Jesus. What I want to do this morning, embarrassingly, blushingly simple as it sounds, is walk us all through the basic Christian message in five verses. I picked five verses from my acquaintance with the navigators and, to a certain extent, from confirmation memorization. But the same thing could be done with a different half dozen verses as well as these and another half dozen different verses after that. How? Well, if you have what's called a study Bible, go to the ones I'm going to use and use your study Bible. It, would, it will supply you parallel verses everywhere in the Bible. Using a study Bible this way is a skill much worth having if you've never done it before. Or use your doctrine textbook. Doctors Mueller and Moss chose verses even better than our standard three-volume dogmatics by Franz Pieper. Why do this anyway? Well, we've all got to have some kind of organization or map telling the story. Plus, religious discussions have a way of wandering all over the map. All too often we never get through the story because we or our curious friends follow Alice down various and sundry rabbit holes and go completely off the rails. So, what's the subject of each verse, you ask? One, that all children of Adam and Eve, primarily me, you, have sinned. Two, that the penalty for sin is death, bodily first, then forever in hell. Three, that Jesus Christ paid that penalty we've accrued by his death on the cross for each and every one of us. Four, that justification before God is pure gift as opposed to a matter of our works. And five, the assurance that one really is justified before God now and then forever. Two caveats. This is not mechanical, thinking something like Campus Crusades for Spiritual Laws. There will be men or women with whom you were talking who have so heard the law that you can completely skip the first two sets of verses. They're already so crushed 
so broken by the law that you doing any more of the law is totally unnecessary. So skip to the verses about skip the verses about the law stuff. Go to Christ, his death, what his death did, what justification is. Why? Because your hearer has already gotten the bad news, but still is in need of you explicating the good news. Know beforehand that you are often going to be asked how you know this gospel is true, not helpful, true. And for that, I recommend our apologetics course here, no matter whether it's from me or from Dr. Moss or from Dr. Francisco, we're all doing the same sort of thing. So let's look quickly at each of the verses, shall we? First, that we, I first, then only the person to whom I'm talking are sinners, are, are sinful. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is addressed to rebels who hate their creator. That's me and you. The classic text is, of course, the story of the fall in Genesis 3. But there are New Testament parallels as well. For example, St. Paul's parallel in the first half of Romans chapter 3. Dark, dark, dark stuff. And it's about you and it's about me. This is, of course, not very popular. As Lewis said in his The Case for Christianity, the Christian story begins with bad news. Jesus said that it is only those who are sick and know it who have the need to go looking for a physician. Those who imagine that they are well and not sick unto death will ignore a physician. And I recommend that when we talk about sin, we use ourselves as illustrations. Lord knows there's plenty of raw material. Not using the sin of those to whom we're talking. Do it autobiographically. Your hearer will connect the dots between us all, you yourself, and himself or herself without your help. So I recommend that we use a lot of I rather than a lot of you when we try to get sin across in a secularized generation. And unfortunately, in our therapeutic culture, you and I probably have to contrast feeling guilty with being genuinely guilty. The Bible message is very concerned with the latter and not very much with the former. I can use the Ten Commandments to illustrate my failure, primarily the first, read Luther's Catechism, um, and again, not his or her uh, failure, mine, in the face of God's law. And I've heard some people do this same thing using Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Our primary problem is not that we feel guilty, at least according to the scriptures, it's that we are guilty. The key thing is that we get across that we are all already doomed, already face a completely holy and righteous judge, and are presently under his righteous condemnation. And the final will not be graded on the curve. There are only two grades, 100% and zero. And the standard for the judgment is his law. And that law in the Bible checkmates us. Each of us in his or her cell on the green mile and the sentence of condemnation already pronounced. The carrying out of the judge's sentence of death is all we can expect. Unless there is some intervener greater than we, someone who is not sick unto death, some rescuer champion greater than we. Two, that the penalty for sin is death, bodily death, then forever death. 
Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This sin-death law linkage in the Bible is a matter of the entire race's sin as compared with my personal death, my personal sin. But regardless, it all comes down to the same thing anyway. I am a willing member of a fallen and sinful race, the one we call human. So are you. And so is your hearer, Gentile or Jew, it makes no difference. Rosenblatt has willingly, proudly, happily, and on a daily basis piled up against himself God's altogether righteous wrath, his retributive justice. If I say I just want God at the judgment to give me what I deserve, he will. If I see myself as somehow above needing mercy or grace, if I just want justice or fairness, God will give me exactly what I've said I want. Now, whether when I get justice, it is to my joy or to my terror is another question. Third, that Christ in his death on the cross paid the penalty I and you too owe. Romans 5.8 But God evidences his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've already seen that we deserve nothing but execution and condemnation forever, not just for our sins daily, but for the sin we inherited from Adam. And if one doesn't get us, the other will. We fare badly on both counts. But amazingly, that God who is perfectly holy and just, once in human time, that is during the days of Caesar Augustus, became one of us, took our place and later dealt out his justice on himself instead of on us. This is Christianity, folks. Christianity is not about moral improvement, transformation, community, happiness, or any of the rest of that stuff. It's about the offended king giving his life and blood in order to rescue those who hate him. That's you and me. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our sin was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. St. Paul, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us. St. Peter, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins on the tree. God was under no obligation whatever to do any of this, but he did it anyway. If you are going to some claimed Christian church and this is not the essence, the center of what is communicated to you every single Sunday, my advice to you is get out of there. Switch churches. If this amazing announcement of what God did for you one afternoon 2,000 years ago isn't defining, isn't central, isn't the message 13 ways from Friday, the old Lutheran fathers would probably say it's not really a church you're attending. It's some kind of weekly gathering, but a church it ain't. And I don't care how often the worship leader uses the name of Jesus either. If it isn't clearly about the Jesus who bled, died, reconciled God to you, propitiated God's own wrath for you, adopted you as his child by the blood of his cross, where God richly and daily forgives your sin on the basis of Jesus' blood and death, the worship leader's Jesus ain't the Jesus of the New Testament. Christianity is not about moral improvement, it's about substitution. The innocent one dying for the guilty ones. 
Correlatively, Christianity is not primarily about recipes for healthy relationships, better parenting, wiser dating, more intimate marriages, better financial responsibilities, or any of that. By nature, I again and again return to my own perceived needs as a dog returns to its vomit. And so do you, I'll bet. And we need a pastor to placard before our eyes, Jesus is dying, to preach into our earballs, Jesus dying for us, the good news of what Jesus' death did. Preach to us what we do not incline to, the depth of our sin, and that somehow the Jesus of the New Testament text is even greater than that sin, and that he freely laid down his life for it, somehow conquered our death for us by dying in our place. Christianity isn't about us. It's about Jesus and his identity and his work for us. Our only part is as beggar recipients of the overspill of who he was and what his cross did for us. It's about Jesus' death somehow putting us right with God. Very simply, Jesus and his substitutionary dying solved my real problem, sin. Regardless of the fact that I imagine my real problems are any of a thousand earthly problems. Scripture says I'm not even capable of knowing or diagnosing what my real problem is. I invent other problems, call them all my real problems. That's why I need Scripture to tell me again and again that my real problem is my hatred of God. But as I said, not just that. I need my pastor to be telling me that Jesus' blood and death have rescued me from the problem I didn't even know was my problem. And that it worked. How do I know that it worked? God, help me not by its making me somehow more moral or somehow better each day. Or happier either. Or experiencing Jesus, whatever that means, I don't have a clue. I'm to know that the cross actually did what Jesus said it did by the fact that the Father raised him out of the grave three days after you and I, by the way, killed him on that dark Friday afternoon. Four, that justification, or the more general salvation, is utter gift, does not involve any good works on your part or mine. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this one you know. For it's by grace that you're saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. The only righteousness that opens the gate of heaven for sinners is the righteousness that belonged to someone else. Christianity is basically about what the Father was doing for me and for you in the death of his only begotten Son one afternoon. What's our part in this deal? Our part is sin. And when we're talking to someone about grace, we're speaking of what the old fathers called the favor dei propter Christum, the favor of God on account of Christ. The law-obeying life he lived for us, but especially about his cross, blood, and death in our stead. Grace is the opposite of earning. The one is pure gift, the other is wages. We saw above that what you and I have earned is death. That's our deserved wages. But not so is the gift of free life. Deliverance by another so that in him we are part of God's gratuitous favor. God found a way to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. The key Bible word here is imputation. Adam's sin was imputed to us, says the Bible. But then what we could never have seen coming, God imputed our sin to his son instead of to us. 
What Jesus was and did is imputed or reckoned to our accounts by the great judge. And what we are and have done, the judge imputes or reckons to Jesus' account. Our sin, the judge announces, was accounted, reckoned his instead of ours. Luther calls it the happy exchange. The righteous judge declares those in Christ as if righteous. Bang goes the gavel in the heavenly courtroom. And the judge's voice booms out, I declare you innocent. And I whisper to myself, but I'm guilty as all get out. Still, really, palpably. The judge hears me whispering. And he nails it. I am the judge of this courtroom, and my judgments are unassailable by anyone, including you, Rosenblatt. I declared you innocent, and mine is the final law of this land. You are reprieved now and forever. Your sentence is commuted as of now. When I reckon my son's innocence to you and declare you innocent, then I see you as if innocent. We aren't talking about morals here unless you mean the morals of my son. His morals and death are now counting for you, are the basis of my judgment, so there. Christianity is about imputed righteousness. His, Jesus' righteousness, imputed to you and to me as if ours. Correlatively, Christianity is not about our, our imagined improved morals and sanctification. Again, if you're at a church talking constantly about your improvement, go find another church. One that talks about your failure to improve and about Jesus' real righteousness imputed to you on your account. And who, a pastor who does it now, next week, next month, and forever. Why? Because your church is killing you. Five, the assurance that this, that we, I, you, are really justified before God. First John 5, 12 through 13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Can an individual be sure of possession of this great present and future gift imputed to him or her? You bet. And the primary reasons we can know this are, one, that it has absolutely nothing to say about us and our moral state, but only about what Scripture says the death of Christ did that afternoon, and two, because looking to that, and only to that, as what justifies us before God, means that God has himself put a wooden stake through the evil vampire heart of our looking at our supposed virtue as a way of earning our way in. It's admittedly, roughly, what the Bible means by the word repentance. He has repented you. It's 100% the righteousness of the Son and 0% any false righteousness of mine. The man or woman driven by God's Spirit to have given up on plan A, that is, I'll get six year better on the final and God will grade it on the curve, and has fled to plan B. God has justified sinners linked to Jesus by simple faith in Jesus' death. Can know that he or she is in, not out. The God who never changes, Malachi 3.6, promises that to you. In Jesus, you're in, not out. Now, and when you face the final judgment, what will you hear at the final judgment? A public recounting of all your sins? Nope. God long ago forgot them. 
any promises he has. He can't even call, bring them back to his memory. You will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I tried to get this across in an address I gave here at Space Mountain that went public a while back. It was called The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. We'll find ourselves in heaven. We'll probably say something like, you mean it was all that simple? Just Jesus and his cross and his blood? Well, I'll be damned. But of course, that's the point, isn't it? Not one of us God-haters whom God has repented and faithed into Jesus' death, blood, and cross will ever be damned. Not a single one, ever. And then, as C.S. Lewis put it, the term is over and the holidays have begun. Forever, the great marriage feast of the Lamb in the body and feasting on the finest of meats and the choicest of wines. Welcome, child, welcome. Amen, amen, and amen. Amen. Do you see the difference? One sermon at the Code Orange Revival where the Holy Spirit's been booked for the, la for the next 12 days. Um, well, didn't barely even mention Jesus. Kind of an afterthought. Ooh, I better, I got to close up quick. I got to say something about Jesus. Where is that? Explained Christianity and Christ from beginning to end. There is a difference. Don't tell me it's all about Jesus when you don't mention Jesus until he's just an afterthought. Are there problems at the Code Orange Revival? You bet. Is the Holy Spirit there? Don't even think so at all. Why? Because Christ isn't being proclaimed. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins is not being preached. Instead, people are preaching themselves. That's what's wrong with the Code Orange Revival. So we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>